That's Ayla Brook and the Soundmen from their album Desolation Sounds, Fallen Tree Records. What a thrill it was to be able to introduce them earlier this week on stage. Uh, good to see live music back. People gathering together, real talkers. I heard a couple of people as Ayla Brook and the band jamming away and a couple people from, from, from just down the row. I mean, festival seating. People were, were mixing and mingling and I heard somebody yell, this is the music we listen to every morning before Real Talk starts. And it put a surge of energy through me. I tell you, good Friday morning. Jesperson here with Hoyles and Brooks. We have an excellent show in store. Nay, we have another excellent show in store. But first, let me remind you that this show is presented by our title sponsors at Bitcoin Well. Today is a huge day for Bitcoin Well, a company offering convenient, secure, and reliable ways to buy, sell, and use Bitcoin through a trusted Bitcoin ATM network in a suite of web-based transaction services. Ryan, why do you sound like you're reading from a news release? Because I am. Directly from Yahoo Finance. Yahoo Finance letting the world know that effective at the opening of markets today, in other words, just a short time ago, the common shares of Bitcoin Well will commence trading on the TSX Venture Exchange. You're looking for the symbol BTCW. BTCW. Congratulations to our friends at Bitcoin Well. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Coming up in about eight minutes time, we're going to talk to Sarah Henderson from the BC Center for Disease Control. I always like talking to people who have job titles that are way more impressive than ours. She is a specialist in environmental epidemiology which I think is pretty darn cool. Uh, Dr. Henderson earned her PhD out of UBC. She's now the scientific director in environmental health services at the BC Center for Disease Control. She, for almost 20 years, has been studying wildfire smoke and its health effects. Uh, she's also, by the way, an associate prof in the UBC School of Population and Public Health. So we're going to talk about wildfire smoke and the impact that it can have or that it is having on Canadians across the country. We'll take a look at some different jurisdictions, including uh, some of those closer to where these wildfires are currently burning. B.C., Alberta, Saskatchewan into Manitoba. And then, of course, some of the, the, the residual or lingering effects uh, impacting some of Canada's biggest population centers, uh, including uh, further east, Toronto and the like. Uh, Sarah Henderson coming up in just a little bit. Our Real Talk Roundtable this Friday, you know, it's a Friday tradition, right around 9 o'clock Mountain, 11 o'clock Eastern, though we hate to be hemmed in by those types of rules. Uh, we're going to be talking about indigenous artifacts in museums. Do they belong there or not? And if not, where? And by the way, should we even call them artifacts? Allison Pascal is going to join us. Allison's a curator at the Squamish Lillooet Cultural Center out on the West Coast. Chelsea Vowell, a lecturer in the Native Studies program at the University of Alberta, should be a great conversation. That's coming up in approximately half an hour's time. And then after we talk to those two, we're going to check in with a couple of physicians, uh, an ER doc, Dr. Shazma Mathani, and an ICU doctor, Dr. Darren Markland. Uh, Dr. Markland, one of the very first guests on this show ever, second day we ever did Real Talk. He's on episode two. Dr. Mathani was just 
right behind him for that matter. And they have joined us throughout the course of this uh, pandemic and uh, two different perspectives, right? An emergency room, intensive care unit, and they're going to give us their thoughts on uh, some of the steps that the province of Alberta has taken. Uh, You may have heard that there's been some disagreement about whether or not Alberta's plan is a solid one. And so we're going to ask these two doctors. We want to talk to the experts, right? And people will say, well, what about Dr. Adina Hinshaw, Alberta's chief medical officer of health? She's an expert. You know, I had some people yesterday. uh, A few people checked out our show yesterday, including our conversation with Dr. Ubaka Ogbogu. If you missed it, it was pure fire. And you must, you must check it out. A couple of people were saying to me, hey, Ryan, you guys are pretty critical, especially Dr. Ogbogu, really critical of Dr. Dina Hinshaw. Whatever happened to listening to the experts? And I thought, you know, if you look around you and if you pay attention, like if you're on social media, for example, and if you're not, that's why we're happy to be here, because we will bring these voices from these social media platforms and blast them out. Right. We'll broadcast them out. and We'll have these conversations. We'll expand on the 280 character notes that people post on Twitter. If you look at the experts on mass physicians, not just in Alberta, but healthcare professionals across the country right now are going, what is going on in Alberta? Like it doesn't make sense. And it's not just real talk and it's not just over caffeinated lefties. That it's not just people that can't stand Premier Jason Kenney that are chiming in on this. I mean, if you take a look at yesterday, if you look at what the biggest broadcast outlets in the country were talking about, it's this story. And so we'll continue to stick on it. And of course, a lot of times these conversations will rely a little bit on hindsight. And so we won't know the real impact of some of these decisions until weeks or even months from now. But at least right now, it makes sense to heed the warnings and to listen to the concerns and the reason behind the concerns from some of the smartest doctors across the country. Now, you know that we wrap up our broadcast week every week with something we call Trash Talk, and it's presented by the team at Local Waste. And, of course, we'll be getting into that. But I have a bit of a dilemma right now because, uh, Sarah, you when people send us an email. I mean, some people, some folks have figured out, uh, especially now when I say it, do I even want to do this? You're a lot of folks have figured out, especially if I reply to them and say thanks for your email or thanks for tuning in or thanks for listening or I really appreciate that or please stop emailing me forever. They figured out that my email is Ryan at RyanJesperson.com. They figured that out. People have figured that out. But what we encourage you, what we strongly encourage you to do is to send emails to talk at RyanJesperson.com. That's the official email address of the show. And the reason why that's most important is because I lack a certain depth of organizational skill. And you, on the other hand, as our editorial producer, are quite strong in that department. That email address funnels to both of us. So I I may have been hit with a bit of a double whammy yesterday with regards to email volume. But I think even you, I know with confidence because I saw how many were sent to talk. I'm having a difficult time narrowing down or I'm having a difficult time selecting really Mm -hmm. what's going to be in today's trash talk because we were slammed with emails yesterday. Indeed. So some of these are written kind of in the tone of trash talk, but I'm thinking we can also probably just sprinkle them through the broadcast. Oh, right? I'd love that. Still leaving room for trash talk at the end. But if I don't, because some of these I'm going, I have to read these. Like These are really great. I have to read these. 
And so, but if I do, trash talk is going to be 14 minutes. And you're not going to be able to talk by the My end My voice of it. is going to be shot. Now, we do have a long weekend coming. The show will be off air on Monday. We're going to celebrate with our families, take time to ourselves, get out and enjoy the great outdoors. Our next show is going to be Tuesday morning. So I would have that extra 24 hours to recover, but I digress. So we're going to sprinkle in some emails today. Love it. Including one coming up. I'm not going to read it right now, but there's a fellow by the name of Nolan. And I was like when people set context. You know, they say if you're great storytellers, develop characters. You want to know the position from which someone is coming, right? The perspective from which someone writes and Nolan opens. I mean, his subject line for his email, trying to make sense of public health decisions. And he opens as an engineer. And I went, hmm, interesting. He ties the Alberta government's decision yesterday. The announcement uh, Dr. Dina Hinshaw made two afternoons ago about basically, I mean, we're not talking no masks, we're talking like no contact tracing, no testing, no isolation if you're positive. A couple of my friends, by the way, think it's a great idea. One of them particularly smart. And so I'm going to put his questions. He's going to be, hey, Jesperson, how do you think we're ever going to achieve herd immunity if we don't do this? It's time to do this. And I said, I'll tell you what, pal, instead of me trying to pretend like I'm an epidemiologist, which I'm not, I'll put your question in front of the two doctors for them to go up one side and down the other. So that'll be coming up later in the show. But Nolan writes in, he says, as an engineer, and he compares the announcement made about Alberta and Alberta's new approach to, you know, moving on to the Miami condo collapse. And it's a really interesting email. So that's coming up in just a little bit. So we got a lot of ground to cover on the show today. I also wanted to remind you that uh, there's a big event coming up here in Edmonton. You know this Edmonton World Triathlon? We're really excited to be part of this. You can check it out online at edmonton.triathlon.org. Of course, the Olympic Games are on right now. And you're going, well, how is this going to overlap? Or how is this going to work when the World Triathlon Championship Finals touchdown in Edmonton, August 20th to 22nd? Well, get this, a ton of the Olympic athletes, many of the athletes that have competed in Tokyo's Olympics will be heading to Alberta's capital city to compete. It is the pinnacle international triathlon event. The. And Edmonton is one of three cities around the world to have held these world championships three different times. It's one of the reasons why Edmonton is known as Canada's triathlon city. Did you guys know that Edmonton has produced more Olympians than any other city in Canada? What? Yeah. That's a fact. Edmonton has produced more Olympians than any other city in Canada. That's wild. Very cool. So the organizers are excited to announce they will be welcoming fans and spectators down to the park for elite races to cheer on the best triathletes in the world. That goes Saturday, August 21st. Now, they want to ensure safety and distancing. Somebody's got to do it. So they've set up a booking system. They're going to be like, Jesper, could you keep the politics out of our ad read, please? It was subtle. It's not politics. It was, uh, it's not politics. It's not it's, politics. It's public health. It's public health. <laughs> <You> can, <laughs> Sarah is so excited for the World Triathlon Championships. I'm serious. I can't wait to check this out. These, are, You know why? Because watching these triathletes, it reminds me I need to get off my ass. These are like the fittest athletes in the world. When I say that now, someone's going to come at me, bro. But... If not the triathletes, who's more who's more fit than a triathlete? Seriously. And like they can do it in the on the land, they can do it in the water. I'm like I would I if I got out of the water at the be- I'd, I'd be like so thankful I didn't drown. 
And then they're like, now you got to ride your bike. I'm like, okay. And then you get off your bike and your muscle spasms and you're about to fall. And they're like, and now it's time to start running. Oh, jeez. If you'd rather just watch like me, you can register today at edmonton.triathlon.org. Edmonton.triathlon.org to book your free seats in the prime viewing area. It's the 2021 World Triathlon Championship Finals, August 20th through 22nd at Horlack Park in beautiful Edmonton, Alberta. This is actually a pretty perfect segue, isn't it? Because you think of all the huffing and puffing and you think of what these athletes are going to be working through. You think of all of the health concerns that come with these wildfires. Now, of course, you've still got about three weeks until this happens and a lot can happen in three weeks. But what do we really know about the impact that wildfires, in particular wildfire smoke, have on our bodies, have on our populations in our cities and our rural areas? Dr. Sarah Henderson is scientific director and environmental health services at the BC Center for Disease Control. She's been studying exactly what we're talking about for almost 20 years She's also an associate professor in UBC's School of Population and Public Health. Doctor, welcome to Real Talk. Thanks for making time for us. Yeah, good morning, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you, you, uh, I mean, I look out our windows some mornings or, you know, typically if we're even sleeping with the windows open, you wake up and as you're laying in bed, you know, you can smell it. It smells like five or six neighbors are having campfires all at the same time. This has kind of been the story of the last few weeks. What did it look like, feel like, smell like in your neck of the woods this morning? Well, I'm coming to you from Vancouver, and we haven't actually had a lot of smoke in our region this year. In other years, we've definitely had periods where smoke comes in from all over the place, but we've been lucky so far. So this is, I mean, you you count your blessings to a certain degree, but we know that, I mean, across the country, in particular Western Canada, this has been a real issue. For starters, to set the scene here, do you think most people are aware? Do you think most people think about personal health impacts of wildfires? You know, it's a it's a really good question. I hear a lot of the time, oh, it's natural. It can't be bad for me. Uh, so I think there's a lot of perception that if it's natural fuels that are burning, the air pollution can't be harmful. I think that's changing more and more over time, especially as we have more fires and more big smoke events. But I am sometimes concerned that people don't take it seriously enough. What does taking it seriously look like? Yeah, taking it seriously means taking steps to reduce how much smoke you're breathing. Uh, We don't, you know, smoke causes the worst kind of air pollution that we ever see in Canada. We don't see that kind of pollution event from cars or from industry. It's only wildfire smoke. And the magnitude and the duration of these events, you know, far outweighs any other type of air pollution we ever see. So it's really just taking some pretty simple set steps sometimes to reduce how much smoke you're breathing. Staying indoors, using a portable air cleaner if you can, maybe wearing a mask outside. And a big one is not going exercising outside. I heard you were just talking about that triathlon. When you're running a triathlon, you're breathing about 10 times more air than you are when you're sitting around on your ass like you and me. So, uh, you know, you're 10 times more exposed than you would be. Yeah. And you know what? And I've seen I mean, I can think back a couple of weeks ago. It's pretty bad. I mean, obviously, I only have the perspective of the city where I am. But in Edmonton, a couple of weeks ago, we're out on the golf course. And, and I'll be honest, like at the end of the day, my clothes smelled like I'd been sitting around a campfire. And it kind of occurred to me. I was like, have we had this kind of a passive pollution over the past four or five hours that we were outside? I mean, should we have even been out there? Are you saying that people should make alterations to their plans? 
I'm saying take some simple measures. You can't stop living your life because it's smoky outside. And certainly people live in cities that are highly polluted all over the world and they go about their daily lives. Uh, The key thing is to be aware that the smoke can affect your health, especially if you have pre-existing conditions such as asthma or COPD or heart disease that smoke may be harder for you and you may have more severe health impacts because of it. Otherwise, listen to your body. If you're out on the golf course and you're having a good day and you're feeling fine, you're probably okay. Mm. Should people wear, I mean, you know, we've kind of, in a way, at least many people, I think, have normalized mask wearing. And, And I'm not talking about cloth masks, but people that have worn like N95s A lot of people, I think, would have more of them or would feel more regular walking around with them than they would have a couple of years ago. When wildfire smoke is particularly heavy, would you recommend wearing like an N95 mask out and about? I do recommend it if you're finding that the smoke is getting to you with the caveat that wearing a respirator like that can make breathing a little bit more labored. So if you find that you're wearing a respirator and you're having difficulty catching your breath, it's actually better to take the respirator off. So again, it really kind of comes down to your personal response to the smoke. But if you're wearing a respirator like an N95 or a KN95 or the new CAN95 standards, and these are way more widely available now than they were at the beginning of COVID, um, as long as that respirator is well fitted, meaning that the air you're breathing is going through the material of the mask and not around the material of the mask, it can offer very good protection from the particles in the smoke. But there's also gases in there that the respirator may not protect you against. Fair enough. Can you when you say that the, the wildfire smoke is the worst kind of pollution, can you take us into this and, and help us laypersons understand what you mean or, or yeah, what would go into understanding sure. that? So wildfire smoke, first of all, it's a really complex form of air pollution and it's very dynamic. Your car sort of emits the same thing all of the time. A wildfire, it really depends how hot the fire is burning, what materials it's burning, whether it's burnt into the interface and, you know, anthropogenic building materials are also burning and the weather, what the weather is doing. The thing we concerned about the most is called fine particulate matter or PM 2.5. Now, under normal circumstances in Canada on a normal day, the PM 2.5 almost all the way across the country would be less than 15 micrograms per meter cubed. When it gets smoky, we can easily see 150 micrograms per meter cubed, sometimes 300 micrograms per meter cubed. Mm. So the air quality is 10 or 20 times worse than it normally is with the caveat that we normally have excellent air quality in Canada. Does it matter with, in the context of air quality and, and and I mean, these scenarios are somewhat more rare. I I mean, I think of the devastation that the community of Lytton experienced. Uh, I I think of, you know, for example, the 2,500 or so structures that were, that were you know burned to the ground when Fort McMurray experienced its wildfire. We've seen that in Slave Lake and other Canadian communities. When you have like houses, building materials, insulation, shingles, glue, I mean, all the other stuff that's burning there, does that make a difference uh, with regards to air quality or are we splitting hairs here? 
Um, it's a bit of both. Uh, yes, that makes a big difference. Those materials are going to create a more toxic kind of smoke than wildland fuels alone. On the other hand, usually when we have these severe wildfires, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of acres of wildland that may be burned. So the smoke generated by the wildland will still be a far greater amount than the smoke generated by those anthropogenic materials. But we do need to be extra concerned when we know that buildings are burning and plastics are burning because the smoke will be different. Hmm. Are we talking, I mean, I suspect that you may just say both, but are, are, are we talking about human beings at risk of, of short or longer term health impacts here? Yeah, it's an excellent question. So the short term health pack impacts we know are there. Um, we see that there's, you know, a huge increase in the number of people who go to the emergency room for respiratory concerns, a smaller increase in the number of people who go to the emergency room for severe cardiovascular events, such as a heart attack or out of hospital cardiac arrest. So we definitely know that these things happen when it gets really smoky on top of all of the runny eyes, headaches, scratchy throat, things you wouldn't actually seek uh, healthcare attention for, but they do annoy you and, you know, make you feel less good than you would on a normal day. In the longer term, we don't know that much, but there's a few things we need to be concerned about. First of all, say you have a degenerative condition such as COPD. Maybe that smoke, if there's a lot of it in the summer, is going to degenerate your condition faster than it would have gone if the smoke hadn't have been there. So we certainly concerned about people with these chronic conditions. They may take a real hit during these smoky periods. We are also concerned about the developing fetus. So we know that if you're in the womb under really smoky conditions, your birth weight is likely to be a little bit less than it would have been if you weren't exposed to that smoke in the womb. Um, there may be an increased risk of preterm birth. So, and that has kind of lifelong health implications. We also need to be really concerned about infants and children whose lungs are still developing. Your lungs aren't fully grown until you're fully grown. And especially in the very early years of life, they're growing really quickly. So there's a lot of opportunity for these exposures to cause damage that might actually affect your entire life. Finally, we know like if you live in a really polluted city, you are at higher risk of developing a chronic disease and you're going to have a shorter life expectancy than if you live in a clean city. That's a little bit different because if you live in a really polluted city, you're exposed to that pollution day in, day out, year in, year out. When we have wildfire smoke, we have really kind of big events and then we get a few months or hopefully several months and maybe a couple of years between big events to recover. So we're not really sure that what we know about urban air pollution carries over for smoke pollution. Does it, would it make a difference or does it matter? Or let me rephrase, how significant is it, um, you know, a, a child, a fetus in utero, uh, are we talking like first trimester, second trimester, third trimester? Is there is there an implication with regards to the stage of development and the susceptibility to impact from wildfire smoke? There seems to be, but 
not enough research yet to say that with certainty. So any exposure during pregnancy um, is something you want to try to protect yourself from. But it does seem that it's possible that the earlier exposures may have a bigger impact. We just need more research in this area. We're doing a big study in BC looking at all of the infants who are in utero, in utero during the you know, really severe 2017 and 2018 wildfire seasons, because that's going to give us some really good information. We'll be looking at about 180,000 infants. Wow. You're taking part in that study? Yeah, I'm leading that study. You're leading that study. How, how can I ask? Yeah. I mean, how, how did that? I just find that really fascinating. Uh, how did that get on your radar? Uh, it, there was a study out of California in the 2003 wildfire season, which was also a, a severe wildfire season here, that showed these detriments to birth weight. There's been a few other studies around the world that kind of kind of showed that, you know, these development, these exposures while developing may have consequences. And I just thought we have amazing data in British Columbia and, and often throughout Canada because we have a public health care system I can take, you know, these big administrative databases and say, okay, you were exposed to smoke when you were in utero. Did you get more antibiotic prescriptions um, in your first couple of years of life? Did you have to go to the doctor more for respiratory considerations? Was your birth weight lower than we would expect it to be? And those data systems really just facilitate the ability to do this kind of large scale research. Doctor, what about the firefighters? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, firefighters are, you know, a little bit different from the general population. They tend to be very good shape um, and very healthy, which means that they can be more resilient to the exposures. Having said that, they're also really more exposed. Yeah. They're much closer to the fires. Uh, they're breathing very hard because they're working in, you know, full protective equipment and that's heavy so it's very tough work and in many cases they do it summer after summer so we know from like structural firefighters that's a that's a risky job the smoke exposure from structural firefighting uh definitely has health effects and chronic health effects for for that population I think we're turning more attention now to wildland firefighters to see, um, you know, whether those health effects are, are similar for them as for structural wildland fire or for structural firefighters. Now, I, I don't want to go off on a tangent, but I, but I know you can go here with me. I've just I've had some insight just at a, um, you know, sort of like at a, at, a, at a general level from friends of mine who work not as wildland firefighters, though they have been deployed. When Slave Lake burned, when Fort McMurray burned, they've 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 been assigned there. But typically they're working in the big cities in the metropolitan centers. And I've gained more of an understanding of, you know, how after a fire, they come back and, and, and their bunker gear, right? All the, the fireproof stuff they wear, the coats and the pants and the gloves and everything else gets hosed down because it's it's toxic. I mean, it's covered in, in toxic type stuff. And they've explained to me how back in the, I didn't even know this. You think of some of the traditions, though, of firefighting and we think of some of the iconic imagery you know, if you look back primarily to the men that fought fires like 100 years ago or 80 years ago, they'd wear these big, bushy mustaches. And I learned from these guys historically that they that these men would soak the mustaches in, in water and they'd be soaking in water and then they'd pull the whiskers down in their mouth and they'd almost use it as a filter of sorts, oh, a, very, a, really? a very crude filter. Like we're talking like decades ago when there probably yeah. wasn't a lot of science informing it. 
you look back now and you go, oh, my gosh, to think you're relying on wetting down your mustache uh, to stop yourself (laughs) from getting lung cancer. But it was just such a wake up call to me on how there's so many harmful chemicals at play. It's really this toxic cocktail. Now, I will acknowledge, of course, that it's different when we're talking about wildfires. But that was why I wanted to pick your brain to see how different is it really depending on what's burning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of work happening on the toxicology of wildfire smoke and a lot of that stuff just has to happen in the lab yeah. what they do is they generate smoke in the lab they generally expose animals to it and see what the differential uh, responses to the animals to different kinds of smoke and we've already learned quite a lot um, we certainly know that smoke from really oily trees like eucalyptus or pine is more toxic than smoke from less oily trees like red oak or grasslands so you know we're getting kind of this insight into the fact that the the toxicity of the smoke is differential depending on the fuels, it's probably never going to be as toxic as what those structural firefighters are facing because it's not, you know, when human made materials are burning, they're really dense. Like they're super fuel dense, right? You think of, you've burned plastic before, I'm sure. Think of what happens when you do that and then, and then expand it out to a whole, you know, number of houses or community or even just one house. So I don't think we'll ever see that wildland fuels create smoke as toxic as structural fires do. One of the bigger kind of questions is how does this compare to, you know, diesel exhaust, which we know to be quite risky? How does it compare to gasoline exhaust? How does it compare to the emissions from an oil refinery? And I think that's going to take a while to sort out. Hmm. Um, Sarah Hoyles, who produces this show, pulled some data for us. It's interesting. I'll put it up for people that are going to be seeing this on YouTube, and we'll do our best to describe it for people listening to the podcast. But this is per Environment Canada. This is just a read uh, of some of the air quality values in in some of Canada's urban centers. So as you can see it, you know, we take a look at at Calgary, who's uh, Doc, I guess if I take this from like a one to a 10, Calgary would be sitting at about a four and a half or a five right now. Edmonton looks to be at about a three and a half for a four you've got Fredericton at about a two I guess I should clarify that zero would be good here and 10 would be the worst uh Fredericton (laughs) you know at about a two characterizes low risk that's right about where Halifax is uh Ecolowit etc I mean up north uh looks to be you know great there's low risk here with regards to air quality at what point using this number system or for, for Canadians that are paying attention those of us that don't have PhDs and we're trying to determine you know we're looking at this data and trying to determine how we should you know well, how are we going to spend our weekend? How much time we'll spend outside? Whether or not we're going to ride our bikes and do the big hill climb and huff and puff? I mean, at what point do you, would you sort of say on that number scale, should people start really paying attention? Yeah, so that number scale that you're showing is called the AQHI or the Air Quality Health Index. And it goes from a value of one to 10 plus. Um, one to three really means quite normal air quality conditions in Canada. You know, do what you're going to do. Uh, four, five, and six are really, if you know you're sensitive to air pollution, uh, if you do have asthma or COPD, think about the air quality, think about rescheduling strenuous outdoor activity, you know, just be aware that the air quality might affect you on these days. And then kind of when we get above seven, that's more of an indicator to everybody. The air quality is really not good today. 
and really listen to your body, see how you're feeling and consider that when you're making these choices. And then I would say like 10 plus, don't go for the bike ride. Just, just don't do it. Yeah. No kidding. Uh, that's all I needed to hear, doctor. No exercise this weekend for me. I promise you. In the, in, in the <laughs> I'm, name, I'm glad to give you that excuse. <laughs> in, the, in the name of responsibility. Absolutely. Hey, we really appreciate your availability here. Can I, can I, I I'm just curious to, to, I'm just reading your CV here and how your career's gone. And I'm just particularly interested because I'm about to read an email from an engineer and he's talking about the perspective of an engineer on public health decisions. And I note that you you started your career uh, working as an environmental engineer. You were working on pollution abatement and control, but then you switched your focus, uh, earning your PhD out of UBC about 12 years ago in environmental epidemiology when you first became interested in the public health consequences of engineering decisions which it just yeah. caught, it caught my interest. What happened there? What, what, what was that light bulb moment for you? You know, I've always been interested in the environment and helping to protect the environment, which is why I went into environmental engineering to begin with. Um, and one of my, I was doing some work abroad and I came back and I got a job at UBC just to, to make some money because I didn't make a lot of money abroad. Um, and it was looking at emissions from an oil refinery and how they, uh, affected the local community. And I, I'd been hired for the study because I had that background in engineering and I was able to kind of understand the processes that were, were causing the pollution. But I got really interested in this idea that the pollution, you know, I was always working to abate and control and to keep within permitting limits was actually affecting the health of people. We never talked about that in my engineering training at all. I mean, we talked about how to stay within permit levels. Uh, so I, it just really shifted my thinking about pollution and the environment. And I decided to start tackling it from a different direction. Interesting stuff. We, it was just about a month and a half ago, I guess, just a little bit more than that, that um, there was an alliance of, of oil sands producers uh, and I think this was based in part by by the prime minister's planned uh, Canada's carbon tax. The price on carbon is obviously going to rise pretty steep uh, to position the country for carbon neutral status by 2050. And at the beginning of June, it was the second week of June that uh, Canadian natural resources, Synovus, Imperial, MEG Energy and Suncor. I mean, these are the giants of industry in Alberta's oil sands announced that they are, they're forming this alliance to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions from their operations by 2050. We talked to energy journalist Markham Hislop about this last week and in his piece, uh, his op-ed, he detailed for us, he said that's not enough. Then he talked about some of the other things that he thinks that the oil sands producers need to do or need to prioritize. Uh, do you have any thoughts or do you have anything specific? Or had, I mean, when that announcement was made, I would imagine it was on your radar to a certain degree. Um, a positive step, I would imagine that at least people are talking about this, regardless of what's motivating them to get there. But I'd be curious for your thoughts on it. Yeah, I, I didn't hear about this. I didn't, you know, spend too much time looking into it. But yeah, I agree with you. It is a positive step. Uh, one of the things about these wildfires that we've been seeing across Western Canada for the past decade is we know that the change in climate is really contributing um, to these fires, along with, you know, the history of forest management in, in the country and all that. But the climate is really driving some of, of these intense fires, that heat dome that hit us all 
uh, earlier in the summer. And, you know, these are these kinds of of uh, alliances are the only thing that's going to to move the needle forward and to start getting us out of this. Uh, so, you know, maybe it doesn't go far enough, but it's certainly a step in the right direction is always a step in the right direction. Yeah, well said. Dr. Sarah Henderson, uh, BC Center for Disease Control, University of British Columbia as well. Thanks for your time. It's nice to connect with you. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. Have yeah, a good day. You bet. You as well. Uh, I'm going to get to uh, a couple of emails in just a moment um, and uh, your thoughts on what's been going on here. You know what I realized? And no wonder my, my morning felt somewhat incomplete. Uh, typically, I have our uh, broadcast up, our, our live YouTube stream open on my screen. And I've just realized I didn't, I, I, I felt this void and I wasn't sure what it was. And I realized I've no, I hadn't even checked the live chat yet. What? What, what is even going on? What is wrong with me? Somebody no, has a case of the, no, no, wait a minute. A case of the Fridays. You're probably right. <laughs> one foot out the door on a long weekend. <laughs> no, I'm here for the whole show, everyone. And we hope that you are too. But I'd be curious to know uh, where you're at on this. And, you know, and for example, Deborah writes, she says, yesterday I fell asleep in the afternoon. I woke up coughing. Uh, the window was open. The smoke had moved in. That was that was me a couple of weeks ago. We fell asleep with the, the window open and woke up in the morning. It was just like, wow. I mean, like for a split second, for a split second, when you're still in the haze of waking up, it's like something's on fire, right? There's, there's a fire somewhere. And then, of course, you realize, no, man, that's just heavy, heavy wildfire smoke. Uh, I want to get to uh, Engineer Nolan's email in just a second. But first, I wanted to remind you at altastorage.ca, you'll be able to book your move with Edmonton's number one portable storage and moving service. The team at Alta Moving and Storage, they're Albertans. They have families and friends that depend on them. And when it comes to moving, you can depend on them too. They're trustworthy. They take pride in their dependability and they're knowledgeable when it comes to finding moving solutions that fit your unique situation and your budget. That includes these pod style moving containers. Gone are the days of the big 18-wheel moving truck sitting outside your house, hurrying you, rushing you through the process. It's not going to do anything to dial back the stress you're already feeling when it comes to moving. They take care of as much as you need when you need it. They're Albertans. Let's move together. Check out Alta Moving and Storage online today at altastorage.ca. You can link to them through the Sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. And make sure you let them know that you heard about them on Real Talk. Also got an email from our friends at Park Power. You know what I love about Park Power is that when we get an email from them, we're getting it from the owner of the company. This is, this is they're not small but they have that small business vibe to them. Mm. I just, honestly, if you don't follow them on Instagram, I know I keep pumping their Instagram, but they're a great follow. So Chris reaches out to me and he says, hey, just a note for your listeners. He calls this a frugal Friday note. This is a frugal Friday note from Park Power. He says the wholesale Alberta electricity price has been really volatile and it's been really expensive this year. If you've been paying attention to people, a lot, especially people that are running a lot of fans, a lot of air conditioners right now through that heat wave, people are getting the power bills now. I saw somebody online the other day that said, we've got this tiny little modest bungalow. Their power bill is 550 bucks last Ouch. month. That is way out. Now, someone living in a 6,000 square foot palace is going to go 550. That sounds pretty That's good. That's a bargain basement but, deal. But for the, that was great. That was like 1940s. Damn. So I says, hey, so man. I so I says to the guy. But 
A lot of people are paying more right now to keep the house cool, and that means that the wholesale Alberta electricity prices is, is turning into really expensive bills for people. He says, your listeners, when it comes to a, a variable rate or the regulated rate option that RRO will have noticed that power bills are higher than they were in past, Chris says these expensive bills present a great opportunity for consumers to look at their bills and consider protecting themselves from price volatility by switching to a fixed rate offering. Park Power is currently offering flexible fixed rates for electricity on one and three year terms. So it gives you peace of mind, but you're never locked in, by the way. You can switch your rate or cancel anytime. So you got a ton of options at parkpower.ca. And don't forget, when you take your business over there for electricity and natural gas, if you use the promo code 2021-REALTALK, you're going to save 70 bucks off your first build. We also wanted to give a shout out to the teams at, uh, when it comes to Grand Dog Essentials offerings, the quality raw food, I know I talk a lot about the raw food that our dogs are eating, but I maybe don't talk enough about the supplements that they have. As you can see, they have alternative protein options. You'll see it on their website, granddog.ca. The supplements, probiotics, natural digestive enzymes. They've got a green eggs supplement for joint and mobility support. Even raw fermented goat milk. What does that do for your dog? Well, you'll have to go to the website to find out. Plus, you can always contact their team. If you order your quality raw food from Grand Dog for delivery to your door in Edmonton, Calgary, or Central Alberta, the promo code REALTALK will get you 10% off your first-time order. We're going to be talking about Indigenous artifacts in museums coming up a little bit later on in the broadcast. Also want to leave some time to get to some of the emails that you've been sending us this week, including yesterday, a flood of them, including this one from Nolan. Nolan's trying to make sense of public health decisions, in particular, the announcement from Alberta's premier, Alberta's health minister and Alberta's chief medical officer of health that that essentially Alberta's moving on from the pandemic. No more contact tracing. We're not going to get new cases every day. We're not going to hear that, you know, there are 264 new cases yesterday. We're not going to do that because they're not testing anymore. And if you, I mean, if you happen to, I mean, you can know without a doubt you have COVID-19, a positive test result. You're not even, they say isolation is recommended, but not required. In other words, you could have a cough, a really bad cough, a fever, and someone says, is it COVID-19? You go, oh yeah, no, no. As a matter of fact, it is COVID-19. I know. I have a positive test. I know it is. Well, what are you doing here at the mall? Well, I'm not required to isolate anymore. And then you're sitting there going, are you serious? Like my three kids are here standing in line. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, yeah, no, hey man, I'm just, just following the rules. I'm just following what Dr. Hinshaw told me is cool. I'm just following Jason Kenney's direction for the province. Doctors Nathani and Markland are going to be joining us in about 45 minutes time to talk about this. But Nolan writes in, says, you know, as an engineer, I'm in no way trained to understand decisions that are made by public health authorities. So I, tr- I always try to relate them back to situations in my own field of work. So I can rationalize them. Nolan says what the UCP and Dr. Dina Hinshaw are doing right now completely baffles me. And I, and I can't help but make a comparison to that tragic condo collapse in Florida that killed over 100 people. In 2018, an engineering assessment was done on that building. And the assessment informed them in very clear terms that if damage to that building was not taken care of, there was a strong chance of collapse. Now, being cheap, lazy dumb or all three it took that condo board three fucking years to listen to the engineer and they finally made arrangements to get the damage repaired which obviously was too late in contrast 
When a building in Calgary's Kensington neighborhood was deemed unsafe a few years back, it was evacuated in a number of days. Did this displace people? Did it cause a shitstorm for the city? Did it cost a lot of money? You bet. But nobody lost their life. By ignoring the warnings of doctors and other jurisdictions, Alberta's government is effectively doing the same thing as an incompetent condo board. They're choosing to ignore competence and the advanced tools we have at our disposal to monitor and manage our situation. Engineers exist to build and maintain safe structures. Public health physicians exist to maintain a safe society. The restrictions we had and the testing and tracing that we are about to lose are preventative maintenance that would save us from a full-blown collapse. Nolan says, I think it might be time to deem this province unsafe and evacuate, but I'm not sure that anybody wants us. That from Nolan. I also wanted to read this one from Don. Don writes in from Chestermere. Good morning to Chestermere. I love that part of the province. No, we actually own a business in Chestermere. I just like it. You're like, we do. We, ooh, I, 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 well, I just want to, because you don't hear about Chestermere a lot. Well, it's it's like snuggled up to Calgary it's right sn- there. It's, it's so people, just east of Calgary. So people are like, what? They would, they would They would probably prefer that I stop talking about Chestermere because they probably <laughs> don't want everybody to know about it. Baza. But we, we, pay, we pay property taxes in Chestermere. We're very happy to be business owners out in Chestermere. Don writes in and says, uh, Premier, I read with interest your comments about the appointment of Karen Sorensen as a new senator for Alberta by the prime minister. You know, Karen's been on the show a couple of times, Banff's mayor, right? She came on and she talked about how she wasn't seeking reelection and everybody wondered why. And I think now we know she's moving to the red chamber. Uh, So uh, it it writes Don, it it seems uh, premier, Actually, you know what, Don, with apologies, let's get to what the premier had to say about this yesterday. Why don't we do that first? Why don't we do a bit of a scene setter? This is a letter. You know that Canadians are serious when they write letters, and that includes Jason Kenney. So he released this. He released this hand. No, it's serious. Like if Canadians are super pissed, like that's how you know Canadians are pissed off is they write letters. I am going to write. You know a what I'm going to do? You know what? No, no. You know what? I have a half a mind to do. I have half a mind to write a letter. Americans are like, I'm going to drive my pickup truck through a building. We are like, I'm going to write a letter. That's the difference between Canadians and Americans. The, the pre- only difference. That's the only difference. The premier writes yesterday. Today, the prime minister showed contempt for democracy in Alberta by appointing a hand-picked representative of Alberta to the Senate of Canada in advance of our province's Senate elections. The prime minister knows full well that Alberta will be holding elections for Senate nominees in October of this year. He sure does. He says, I personally informed him of our forthcoming Senate elections at our meeting in Calgary, and I told him that the Alberta legislature had adopted a motion calling on the prime minister not to fill the two current Senate vacancies, but to wait for Albertans to choose their own preferred Senate candidates. He goes on to talk about Alberta's tradition of electing Senate nominees, says it goes back to the 1980s. We've had four Senate elections, five nominees to the Senate selected by Albertans went on to be appointed and to represent Albertans in Parliament democratically. It includes Doug Black, who we've spoken with before on this show. The premier says the prime minister's decision shows contempt for democratic decision making and for Alberta voters in particular. (laughs) 
As a forum for representation of regional interests, the Senate plays a vital role in our federation. It's essential that senators have a mandate from Albertans to ensure they actually defend our vital economic interests. As elected senators Scott Tannis and Doug Black did in defending Alberta from federal intrusion when it comes to developing resources by fighting the Bill C-69 and the tanker ban C-48. You notice that the premier in this letter capitalizes. He calls it the no more pipelines law, and he capitalizes like capital N, no, capital M, more, capital P, pipelines. It's important for people like me to remind you that that is not what the bill is called. Just because a couple of the premier's issues managers have started to apply and affix their own names to federal bills doesn't make them so. That's not the name of the bill. And don't let anybody fool you or gaslight you or trick you into believing that that's what it was called. Concludes Alberta's premier, sadly, the prime minister's decision to snub his nose at Alberta's democratic tradition as part of a pattern of flippantly disregarding our province's demands for a fair deal in the Canadian Federation and the desire of Albertans for democratic accountability. And then he signs it off, Jason Kenney. It's hard to imagine why the prime minister wouldn't give a flying fuck what Jason Kenney thinks about anything, isn't it? The way that Kenney is just so diplomatic and respectful Decorum, really. What I would what I would have loved to know is like what's going like Justin Trudeau and and I'm not a huge Trudeau guy. It's funny because this is what the premier will try to paint me as or anybody else. Right. Is if you if you point out how ridiculous Jason Kenney is in dealing with other people and how there's no way he would understand how to work with others or actually use diplomacy to achieve or further Alberta's interests. Right. He just picks fights. He's he's just he's he's really great at being a prick. And when you say you take a look at this and I just wonder, so like the prime minister's got this real he just he kind of has this pursed lip kind of a look that he's that he just sits there and he smiles and you see it. You saw it when he would shake hands with Donald Trump. You see it when he meets with Jason Kenney. Right. That look. And I can imagine that when Jason Kenney writes, I personally informed the prime minister about this. Right. And I told him that and I demanded this. You ever wonder if maybe there was even more resolve for the prime minister to appoint a senator because of how Jason Kenney handles the situation? Did that ever occur to anybody? Back to Don's email. Premier, I read with interest your comments about the appointment of Karen Sorensen, Bamps mayor, as a new senator for Alberta. It seems you feel that the prime minister's actions are an affront to democracy. It seems to me that in the Canadian Constitution, the prime minister has the right to appoint whomever they wish in Senate. And from a nonpartisan view, the prime minister was perfectly within his authority to appoint Ms. Sorensen. Your comment, premier, from my perspective, reeks of hypocrisy. And quite frankly, the actions of your government are an affront to democracy. Says just off the top of my head, your use of omnibus bills ramming through packages of legislation in hurried fashion, although legal, are an affront to democracy. There's extremely limited time for debate by the legislative members. The press has very little time. The media does to dissect and digest omnibus bills so that they can coherently communicate content and the potential impact to Albertans. Isn't it ironic, Premier, that you brag about achieving the largest majority of votes ever and then essentially crap on all citizens, assuming people who voted for you are merely sheep? A second obvious practice was using the pandemic as an excuse to limit debate and discussion, to boil things down to committees. In addition, the actual number of days in debate and sitting, extremely limited. In my mind, with what you and your cabinet are being paid, you should have been in session all summer to ensure the practice of real democracy. 
You are nothing but a hypocrite, writes Don. Take your shot at the prime minister, but realize that like most of your actions, you avoid real issues in Alberta. You enjoy distracting Albertans. Another truck tweet from the premier, by the way, yesterday. Another tweet about trucks yesterday by the premier. Don says you're distracting Albertans with political theater. Your referendums essentially are a waste of money. Equalization as it stands to which you designed and agreed to will not change. And regarding daylight savings time, you may recall WestJet, your good friends, got pretty uptight with potential changes to daylight savings times just a short while ago. My, how we forget. An affront to democracy. Premier, look in the mirror. That from Dawn in Chestermere. We're going to be talking about indigenous artifacts and museums in uh, just a moment. Of course, these conversations do not happen on this show without the amazing support of our partners. And that includes the team at Westworld Computers. This studio runs every morning because we've got the hardware and the horsepower to make it happen. That includes the iMac there on Sam's desk. It includes the MacBook Pros on Sarah's desk and mine. The iPad in front of me, the iPhone I'm on, and everything else. Not even to mention things. I mean, Sam's taught me to say really cool words like Thunder Dock. <laughs> Thunderbolt Dock. Thunderbolt Dock. Yeah. <laughs> That's why we have a technical producer. <laughs> Although I like the concept of a thunder dock. Thunder dock. That's a really cool. Actually, that's a great band name. Dude, it is. Yeah. You know, have you heard the new tune from Thunder Dock? <laughs> Keep it going. Keep it going. Westworld computers will not sell you thunder docks, but they will sell you thunderbolt docks. Don't ask me what they do. All I know is that I'm here because it's working. You can learn more, you can shop, you can book your service appointment online at westworld.ca. If you're looking to get in the market, a new SUV, now's a great time to buy. The 2021 Jeep lineup looks absolutely fabulous, including that beautiful Grand Wagoneer. This is their re-entry into the luxury full-size SUV market. If you're looking at an Escalade right now, hang tight. You want bang for buck. The Jeep Grand Wagoneer is upon us, plus the Grand Cherokee L. This is the first one with the third row of seating, essentially the seven-seat Grand Cherokee. You'll find the best selection in the province at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. Also, big shout out to the team at Kubi Energy. We want to remind you that while their teams are hard at work right now, putting in solar in industrial, commercial, and residential applications, they're getting ready for one more. That's right, because the Real Talk Net Zero Solar Contest, the voting is underway, and you, Real Talkers, are the ones that are going to choose who it is that wins that free solar install. Here's your call to action. Go to ryanjesperson.com. Click on the question of the week if you haven't done it already. By the way, hundreds of you have already, and we're thrilled about it. Tell us how you feel about solar. A few questions. We're reading the room on sustainable energy and where you're at with maybe considering that step for yourself. The final four slides of the question of the week, the whole thing's going to take you two and a half or three minutes. The final four slides tell you the stories of each of our three finalists, and then you decide who you're going to cast a vote for. On Tuesday morning, our first show back after the long weekend, we will unveil our winner. Somebody is going net zero or as close as we can get them absolutely free with no cost to them. And you're the ones casting the vote. All of this presented by our good friends at Kubi Energy. How much do we know? I mean, how much are we talking about the indigenous artifacts that we see in museums? 
no matter which part of the country you're from, there's a chance that there's a museum near you that features artifacts from indigenous cultures. We wanted to dig into this to really maybe have a conversation that hasn't been had publicly and to get us thinking about another angle on reconciliation. We've promised you real talk on this and we're making good on that this morning. It's a real pleasure to welcome to the show Chelsea Vowell. Chelsea's a lecturer in the Faculty of Native Studies at the University of Alberta, a national best-selling author of Indigenous Rights, a guide to First Nations, Métis, and Inuit issues in Canada. She co-hosts, along with Molly Swain, Indigenous feminist sci-fi podcast Métis in Space. She co-founded the Métis in Space Land Trust, and uh, she's originally from Lac St. Anne, currently calling Edmonton home. Chelsea, it's a real pleasure to welcome you to the show, and, and thanks so much for making time for us today. I'm saying nice to nice to see you. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, Sarah, the, the producer of the show made made a really great point about five minutes before we went on the air this morning. And, and she said, you know, we're talking about indigenous artifacts and museums and we'll get into this conversation in just a moment. But Sarah said, I wonder I wonder if it's even all right to to use the word artifacts. Like, I wonder if the word artifact itself is 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 a really loaded word because of what it implies. Right. It almost implies that it's that it's it's evidence of or it's taken from a dead culture from a culture right. that that has passed that is no longer with us why don't we start there what's your thought on the word um i think that generally people who are working in that area and i just want to i just want to clarify so there are other indigenous people who who do a lot of work about uh rematriation of of uh cultural material to indigenous communities so what i know is is based solely on what I, I hear from other people who are experts. Um, but yeah, mo- most of the time people are talking about, um, you know, uh, material culture. So this is, these are, these are items that belong to cultures that are still living. And just like any culture, we have things that, uh, that we can look at that are from the past uh, that are still linked to the practices that we have today. So talking about them as artifacts, um, maybe not everybody's going to object to that, but yeah, the idea of placing indigenous peoples in the past is inherently problematic you're going to be teaching uh this fall my understanding and and correct me if i'm inaccurate in this but the university of alberta uh native studies so ns 111 contemporary perspectives in indigenous studies and my understanding is that this is essentially kind of a survey uh or an overlay of current issues affecting indigenous people in canada and their efforts to confront colonial relationships with and within canadian society is this an example, what we're talking about here today, it, would this be an example of an angle that you might explore with, with your students at the U of A as part of this course? Absolutely. Um, just there are, there are so many issues with uh, the kinds of materials that we do find in museums. So uh, in many cases, the, the, the things that you see there, particularly um, items that were made by women, tend to be... Uh, like not labeled as who did it. It's, it's always anonymous. We don't, nobody, nobody names the women who made these items. Uh, quite often these uh, pieces of material culture are mislabeled by nation. We're not, we're not really sure which nation they come from because certain nations, you know, the Métis, um, Anishinaabe and Cree in, in particular tend to share a lot of floral motifs. So when people find uh, these pieces of material culture, they, they just sort of, they're like, well, this is, They'll call it woodland style or whatever, but we're not get, getting that specificity. And in some cases, people go into museums and find items that they know their their relations made because 
when particularly indigenous women, um, you know, when they bead, when they when they do embroidery, these kinds of things, there are specific patterns that people can recognize that tell you uh, uh, the story of which community they're from. And so, you know, imagine going in there and seeing something that you're you're certain uh, your great great grandmother made and having it labeled as anonymous and possibly mislabeled by nation. So these kinds of things um, sort of further the erasure of Indigenous peoples who are still living, who still have connection to these pieces of material culture. And absolutely, we need to talk about that. Chelsea, I want to integrate some of the comments here from uh, the, the people in our live chat that, that show up to participate in this with us every single morning. And and uh, Kim says, hang on, did she say rematriation? Kim says, I've never heard the word before. And she says, I can guess the meaning but I'd be curious to know the actual meaning. Right. So uh, rematriation is a term that basically comes from grassroots movements. Um, it's it's an attempt to distance oneself uh, from, you know, patriarchal society. Um, and it, and it's, it gestures to the fact that many Indigenous nations um, are are matriarchal. Uh, so it's, it's a bit of a play on words there. And I don't know. I, I I, I tend to use it quite a bit. Yeah, well, that's great. I So we're, we're getting a whole bunch of people that are making comments on things that they have seen in museums. You know, Mark, for example, who watches us from Utah every morning, says, you know, it's always bothered me when I see medicine bundles in museums. But, but then Brenda says, to be honest, I've learned a ton from indigenous exhibitions in museums. So where do you land on with regards to what's respectful, what's appropriate? I mean, what would you say? Well, I mean, in general, these kinds of things need to be curated, uh, you know, in consultation with uh, Indigenous peoples from whom the material culture comes, right? Mm-hmm. Nobody can teach you more about any of these things than the people that, that made them or the people from whose culture they come. And this is something that is being done more and more. It's just, you know, the, it, it's incremental steps. Incrementalism is is problematic for me because the the change is slow and it doesn't need to be that way. There are so many experts in various Indigenous communities that can provide a lot more detailed information into the meaning of the items that people are seeing. You know, sometimes sometimes what's being presented is inaccurate or not the full story. And, um, you know, there's no reason for that because, again, the expertise is there. So, what is respectful is letting Indigenous peoples tell our own stories and make decisions about what should be on display and what should not be on display. Medicine bundles, uh, for example, it's it's kind of complicated because um, medicine bundles are, are, you know, without going into anything that's sort of um, sacred and that I shouldn't be sharing, medicine bundles carry with them um, obligations and responsibilities for the people who are caring for them. They're, they are they are meant to be cared for um, continually, not just sort of placed there and, and left to gather dust. And so who takes on that responsibility when those things are, are placed into museums? Are communities being given access to pay their respects and, and to fulfill their obligations or not? And some of those things, I know that um, there's, on, on the other hand, some people will say, well, just give everything back. But also that's not always appropriate. Sometimes, mm. again, if you have an item that carries with it an obligation to care for it, uh, you know, you can't, you can't just throw it to the community and say, okay, now it's your problem. You have to find people who are willing to take on that responsibility. So it's something that needs to be done in consultation um, with with everybody who's uh, being affected. That's such a great point. Um, you know, 
it's the idea of stewardship, isn't it? Really? I mean, you know, some things I think can be given as gifts or presented as gifts. Like there's a really interesting comment here from a, a viewer that says, you know, a, a family member of theirs uh, who is a missionary. And, and then they use a, a puking emoji, by the way. But that's their own. I want to I want to do the comment justice here. I, it looks like it's hijinks saying this says that they have a war club. That was given to a missionary family member that said, I've been working to track it down to give it back. I feel gross that we have it in the family. Yeah, I think with items like that, too, that's not uncommon that people will in their family have items that have been passed down. And, you know, how 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 they came to have those items is not always clear. Uh, But, you know, what do you do with them then? How, you know. If, if you're not even sure which community it's from, then how do you even know who to contact? And these are just, these are issues that you're going to find um, with any sort of material culture is trying to figure out where, where does it originate and who is it appropriate to speak to, to, to maybe talk about um, giving it back. I think more problematic is the practice of, you know, you, you go on eBay, um, you know, you see these sales all the time at auction houses, all sorts of material culture um, that was frankly stolen. Let's be, let's be clear about that. Cause that's how music get a lot of stuff uh you know these these items are being sold for ridiculous amounts and going into private collections and never being seen again and so you have um you have a lot of indigenous people and non-indigenous people who pay attention to this buy these items uh gregory schofield for example who is a metis poet has been for years now um i'm going to use that term again rematriating items that that are sort of being sold like this and bringing them home and trying to figure out you know, who, who made them, um, you know, and these are not items that are held in museums. So a lot of work is being done individually and privately out there to try to get some of these materials back. And now the trick is to figure out, well, where are they going to be housed respectfully and who can help with the, the work of identifying them? Do you see this being as a, I mean, I, I think it's fair to say that because I, I see it around me and we receive emails from people that are saying this, that, that literally millions of Canadians now uh, along with indigenous people in Canada are, are saying we need to get serious about that. Like there's been this, I don't know if you want to call it an awakening or whatever you want to call it, but over the, over the past couple of months, I mean, since the end of May, uh, that when that ground radar gave us the number 215 outside the former Kamloops Indian residential school. And then subsequently, of course, we've, there, there have been so many more punches to the gut. And, and I think that a lot of Canadians are, are feeling, if not shame, uh, at the very least, an impetus to take meaningful action on reconciliation. Many Canadians are looking within and saying, why did I not feel the same awakening, for example, when the Truth and Reconciliation Report came out or, or when there were the calls to action or like all of these things. Uh, and that's the general theme of, I think, a lot of people's conversation is, okay, it's come time to do something. It's come time to take meaningful action. I think it's going to be an election issue this fall to a certain degree, at least at the doors. Canadians are going to be asking candidates seeking election what they intend to do about it. People will expect to see meaningful action in, in party platforms. How do you see this fitting into that? And bigger picture, what would you like to see across the country? Well, this is this is just one of many issues that basically boils down to uh, respect, you know, and reciprocity. So if if 
Canada is serious about taking Indigenous nations, um, you know, uh, having a respectful relationship with Indigenous nations, treating Indigenous nations as equal, then all of the decisions that are made, whether it's about material culture and museums, whether it's about what steps should be taken taken moving forward, uh, whether it's about curricular changes, all, all the kinds of things that the TRC actually discussed and in their calls to action, those things can't be done from the top down. They have to be done in consultation. And it, it can't just be more platitudes because after the TRC final report came out, everybody pledged immediately to, to start implementing them. Trudeau, you know, even though he didn't have the power to implement every call to action because some of them were outside of uh, his jurisdiction, was, you know, very clear that uh, Canada was going to implement them all. And, and what do we have? Stalled action. So I think what's most important is it's not it's not so important that people like talk about what they want to do and make election promises and stuff. We've seen that for generations and we're really tired of it, no matter what the issue is, whether it's clean drinking water, whether it's, you know, uncovering more of these grave sites. We need to see actual action. We need to see people doing things and more of that less talk because the talk and the research and the, the recommendations and the calls to action, they're there. They're there for everybody to read. We know what steps we need to make, uh, you know, going forward. And now is the time where Canadians have to insist that something happens within a, a set period of time. And maybe that's something that Canadians could start doing and saying, look, we, we, we know that you have the desire to, to do these things. You promised it, but we want to see it or else. And that or else has to be serious. Can, can we agree that, Conceptually, I mean, I guess it depends on how we define a museum, but museums can provide or have the potential to provide great value to a society if done right. I mean, anything can. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, um, I think the problem is uh, that still, even though there has been some movement and, and there's plenty of work being done by uh, particularly indigenous scholars in the field to to you know resolve these issues. Um, to work with museums and to hold museums accountable. But museums are are still these institutions that change slowly and move slowly. And again, talking about that incrementalism, um, and that's not going to cut it anymore. Uh, there are still so many problems with the relationships between Native communities and museums, and they don't need to be there because Indigenous communities consistently reach out you know, provide knowledge keepers, provide the time of elders, provide the, you know, the time and, and effort of people in the community to build those relationships. And often um, they're not reciprocated and there's no reason for that. So again, if this is an issue that political pressure can be put on to say, you know, we see you're trying, but it's not enough and we need you to step it up, uh, then that's what we need across the board in every relationship. Because trying and, and making statements and may, maybe hiring a few people, but treating them badly, mm. that's not that's not cutting it. And that's what continues to go on in Canadian institutions. Did you have this isn't totally related, but I just I have you here and I have to ask you, did you see this story reported by Bethany Lindsay from the CBC about um, how a whole bunch of museum and art gallery shops were duped? by this fake indigenous carver. Did you see this? I mean, galleries in Whistler, Vancouver. It was actually uh, out of it, the story actually started in Alberta when somebody questioned this this Harvey John, this pseudonym. People believed that they were buying these pieces. These pieces were hundreds, if not thousands of dollars by this person, Harvey John. The person exists. They're not named Harvey John, and they're certainly not a Haida carver as they purported right. to be. It, it to me... 
I mean, it's it's a shocking story, and and uh, Bethany does a great job getting into it. People can read it at cbc.ca. It talks about the guy, that the art dealer out of Langley, BC, says that he realized this himself several years ago, um, and now he's eating crow and like you're trying to apologize to everybody. And he's saying he says I knew I knew he wasn't uh, a Haida carver, but I, I I knew it was his livelihood, and so I kind of went along with it because I didn't want to put somebody out of work. And he's coming up with these really horrible right, excuses right. as to why he did it. But it got me thinking, actually, bigger picture, which is stuff we've known which is going on all over the place which is you know fake headdresses fake moccasins fake other whatever you, i don't know if you call them artifacts but but certainly what collectibles yes. Th- yeah. a lot of times are being manufactured overseas and brought over i mean th- we could really go down some different avenues here in talking about this yeah well i mean art fraud is 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 a <laughs> is a is not a new issue um so i think people are going to step into uh you know doing that to to make a profit anytime they can and i think with the interest in uh you know buying indigenous artifacts <laughs> art any sort of things like that uh you know you're going to get people coming in offering cheaper knockoffs and it's a real problem um for cultural workers because you know, the, of course, you know, as with anything, the more time and expertise you have uh, putting into to making an item, um, the more it's going to cost, but the consumer doesn't want to pay that much. So they'll buy something that's made in China with some, you know, glued on beads and things like that. So, you know, it's, it's not necessarily um, up to, I think, cultural workers to, to solve this problem. It's up to the consumer um, to, be a bit more discerning and ask the right questions. And also, you know, we can't just leave it up to the consumer as well. We have to, we have to have some sort of way of holding people accountable when they're presenting frauds uh, as legitimate and they're allowing this, this art to be sold for hundreds and thousands of dollars uh, misrepresenting, you know, what nation they're from and that they're even indigenous. And this is, this is a wider problem in general, but um, yeah, I, what can you do in, in the States? There's an Indian arts and, uh, and crafts act. Uh, you cannot uh, sell something and say that you're from a specific indigenous nation unless you are, or you can risk fines. Mm. And that has been definitely something that people have talked about here in Canada, whether or not that's appropriate, whether or not that would, that would, um, you know, perhaps violate the right of non-status people to, to produce their own cultural items. That's something that we have to talk about, but this is a discussion that I think if we keep having, people are going to have more information and make uh, better choices about the purchases that they're making. Yeah. Erin Brillen uh, deserves uh, credit for, I think, for making the discovery. Uh, she's a, a Haida Cree fashion designer. Uh, people can check out her work at Totem Design House. And she was the one that noticed the listing from an art shop out of Alberta that described this so-called Harvey John's work as original Haida carvings. And she posted, people can check out her Facebook group. Um, it's a group devoted to exposing fraudulent indigenous art. And she said uh, in her interview with the CBC, she said, I knew instantly that this was not art done by a Haida person. It was not Haida designed in any way, shape or form. And she says, I knew that the surname John is not a Haida last name. I feel sick. I mean, number one, I think for the people, many people, if not most of them, would have been collecting this in good faith, obviously oh, believing that they were supporting an indigenous artist. And I can't even imagine how I would feel had that been hanging on my wall for the last five years. And then you find out that it's BS. Right. And and it does take money away from actual Indigenous artists. But here's the thing is people sort of forget how small our communities are. You know, so I, I don't know why they think they can get away with it. And honestly, I think it's ignorance because, of course, if you are an expert in a particular style of art, 
it, it is going to take one glance. I mean, I, I would in no way say that I am uh, an expert in these things, but I can go into museums and I, I can I can tell even just roughly you know, where something comes from, like this is Blackfoot versus Cree, you know, versus, you know, Dene, those, those things are, are very obvious, um, even to a fairly untrained eye like mine. But if you're an expert, yeah, you're, you're going to notice that. And again, we, we know who are, who the people are in our nations. Like it, it, it can come down to surnames, you know, it can come down to uh, people asking questions. Hey, have you heard of this guy? And nobody's heard of him. So how can he say he's from our community? These conversations are happening all the time in the background, so I'm not sure why people keep thinking they're going to get away with it. I, that's the thing. I is so brazen. It's just like, yes. what were you? Th- how how long did you think you were going to get away with this? That's the thing that just blows my mind. Uh, Chelsea, what have you seen with with regards to an uptick of interest in the Faculty of Native Studies and some of the programming and and um, and and studies that are available at the University of Alberta? I know. Let me let me just say that the the now Emmy Award winning Dan Levy's <laughs> yeah. public statement of interest interest and his participation in that free course I think spurred a lot of it at least what it did was it shone a huge spotlight on it and I know several friends of mine people close to me are have either completed the course or are currently taking it what's that been like for you from your perspective as an associate professor there oh it's amazing to watch um it's really heartening because yes um you know I think it was something like the enrollment went up by 20,000, you know, in a couple of days uh, when, when Dan started posting about it. And th- what I really liked about it too, is that he had um, Instagram conversations with professors and, and experts um, as he was going through the materials. So it was sort of this deeper um, involvement with the materials that, that he was able to sort of pass on to people that were interested. And that, that sort of thing I think is very exciting. And there's another surge in enrollment. It's the indigenous Canada, um, you know, massive uh, open online course. And quite a few people are, are looking into that now because of all the discoveries of uh, mass graves at residential schools. I think what you, you talked about earlier is people are, are definitely asking themselves, well, you know, why didn't I, why didn't I pay attention when the TRC was happening? And now, you know, these are, these are children. It's, it's really hard to sort of just push it aside and not think about it. Um, and so I think it's it's sort of, uh, you know, pricking the conscience of uh, a lot of Canadians and they're trying to find out more information. So in, in, in the era where everybody's telling you to just Google it and, and a lot of the information that you find on Google is inaccurate, uh, being able to go to a course like this that is a survey course um, is an incredibly important uh, starting point to, to get us beyond these really basic conversations that we've been having, again, for generations. Because the goal here is to stop asking about, you know, do First Nations pay taxes and do you get free housing and these kinds of things that come up all the time. And let's actually start talking about how we're going to live together in these lands in an era where climate change is, you know, it affects us all. It's something we're all worried about. We're all worried about sort of the political landscape. What is it doing for us? Does it work for, for all of us? Does it work for any of us? You know, so if, if we get past those, that, that 101, that survey uh, understanding of things and start building a better future together, then, you know, for me, that's the most exciting thing that can happen. And I feel like it really does take that interest. We can't force anybody to learn about indigenous topics. They gotta, they gotta want to come to it. Um, and that's, I'm seeing that a bit more right now. And yeah, so it does fill me with a bit of hope. It's, it's also been interesting to see, I think that, you know, there was uh, a conversation about Alberta's curriculum development had, had been brewing for a long time and people had been pushing back 
uh, we, we've talked to Dr. Carla Peck a whole bunch about this and others. Um, and uh, but but I've seen that the focus has started to narrow in a good way. Let me say it started to hone in um, on indigenous uh, issues, history, uh, and understanding contained in that curriculum. There are a lot of other issues around it. We could talk about, you know, like math or other elements of the social studies curriculum or whatever. But the general population, like civilians, I think, in, in my mind, I've noticed a trend toward people prioritizing that angle on it. They want to ensure that the Alberta government, that Alberta education, that school boards, demonstrate an understanding of the public appetite and the priority that the public is placing on ensuring that our youngest learners from the earliest grades are starting to really recognize the importance of these angles of our history, our shared history. Yeah, I think it's it's really sad that so much work went into creating a curriculum, um, you know, before the UCP were in. Uh, and, and this is the thing that people have to understand is that asking Indigenous communities over and over again for consultation, it's it's something you have to do, but you have to recognize and respect the amount of effort that goes in. So here you, you had people talking for years to elders, to knowledge keepers, to people in the community to draft a curriculum that was, you know, at least acceptable, that was better, that was going to to cut across um, all the all the different courses, all the different, you know, areas and from K to 12. And then for a political party to just come in and erase that and then try to start over um, really bothers me because it's a complete waste of time for those Indigenous communities. And how often are we going to ask these people who have other concerns as well to just keep coming forward and and in good faith and with all the love in their hearts, provide the the effort and energy that's required to, um, to, to make these kinds of uh, curricula. So it's great that people in the public are are putting pressure on politicians. That has to happen more often. But um, I also just need people to stop doing this, to stop asking for uh, all this time and effort and energy from Indigenous peoples and then just flushing it when, uh, you know, the government changes over. They don't it doesn't seem like a, 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 an interesting political topic anymore. And I mean, this is everything. This is every single time. Uh, that that you know Canada comes to talk to Indigenous nations about the environment, about specific community needs, about museums, all of this. We're talking generations of consultations and dialogues with so much effort being put in that just are forgotten about or ignored, and and then we do it again. That cycle has to be broken because, frankly, it's quite abusive. Yeah. Chelsea, thanks so much for giving us so much to think about. Um, I appreciate this. Uh, I want to mention again your book, Indigenous Rights, A Guide to First Nations, Métis, and Inuit Issues in Canada. It's uh, a national best-selling book. Also, your podcast, Métis in Space. And of course, people can learn more uh, by checking out the university's website. Uh, you're a lecturer in the Faculty of Native Studies at the University of Alberta. It's been great to be able to tap into your expertise. We appreciate you sharing your perspective, and I wish you a good weekend. Thank you, Chelsea. Beautiful. Um, Online, we've got, I mean, in part of our comments, uh, Randy Thunderhorse says, you know, it's it's crazy to me that you can find indigenous medicines for sale on Etsy and Amazon. Randy says, I grew up in a medicine family. Uh, my mom, Kukum, Musum have taught us the medicine is to give to those in need. Janice says, I hate that our work, even in, in ribbon skirts and moccasins are being mass produced. 
by non-indigenous people selling them at farmers markets. I mean, this is, this is just something I think these conversations are good to have just to even be able to remind her. I mean, that, that story of that, that the fake art is I, I was reading that. I'm going my first thing is like, who is this person? I mean, that is I don't want to say gutsy because gutsy is kind of a compliment. I don't mean it as a compliment. It's it's brazen. That's for sure to think you're going to get away with this. You imagine or you wonder who knew what and mm. when. Right. Art dealers. I mean, if you're an art dealer that were uh, selling this in good faith, you'd be mortified because your reputation, of course, is going to be impacted by this. Those that knew and continued to sell it. That's an entirely different story. Uh, but fascinating stuff. But I like conversations like this with Chelsea. It'll make us think. I mean, the, even the comment there about farmer stuff for sale at farmers markets is one question. You know, who, who, who made this? Where is this from? You know, what's your story? Here is a vendor selling it. Do you, you know, I mean, these are relevant, fair and important questions to ask. Absolutely. So insightful. I mean, we start with museums and then from there, I mean, it's. I just, I love how everything is so intersectional. Everything connects that we can talk about. Um, we start at museums and we end, you know, with Indigenous 101 yeah. from the U of A. Totally. Allie writes in and says, I got everybody in my family a copy of her book, Indigenous Rights, for Christmas last year. I love that. Uh, before we check in with uh, two of the physicians that have been such good friends of this show through our first eight months, um, I'm looking forward to welcoming back Drs. Shazma Mathani and Darren Markland. I want to remind you that as we talk about learning, as we talk about university or post-secondary, I know that, of course, many of you, uh, including those of you that have been completing your post-secondary studies, have had a digital experience with your studies over this last year for obvious reasons, right? Everything went online. Well, AU, Athabasca University, they were well positioned for the pandemic because they are truly an online university. They, they didn't have to scramble. They didn't slap together some sort of a temporary setup online. They didn't rush. They didn't barely meet the needs of their students. Online and on demand is what they do every day, and it's what they will continue to do. Even when other aspects of your life go back to in-person, your schooling doesn't have to. You can do your schooling from anywhere. While the kids are at soccer practice, maybe while you're in a hotel room for, for work, travel, or even on the road, it's easier to incorporate schooling in your life when you don't have to work around a particular time and place. AU fits your schedule and your life. And you can learn more at AthabascaU.ca. I was so thrilled our Uncle Lawrence is visiting from Vancouver, and that means that yesterday he was able to visit a Friesen Brothers for the very first time. I happen to know that Uncle Lawrence this morning will be enjoying a Friesen Brothers sourdough cinnamon bun with his morning coffee. Imagine how excited he is as a daily listener to Real Talk to be experiencing that. Friesen Brothers has 16 stores across the province of Alberta and for more than 65 years, 66 in fact, they've been Alberta grown and Alberta owned. We wanted to remind you if your weekend, your long weekend plans include barbecuing, check out their brand new Friesen Brothers brand barbecue sauces. It could be the world's best barbecue sauce. You'll find them in original, hickory, chicken and rib, and honey garlic. The Jespo recommendation is the original. And if you're looking for something to cool you down this weekend, if you happen to be in the Metro Edmonton region, why not visit the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park? The fan favorite Kit Kat Blizzard is back. It's made with the real Kit Kat candy bar pieces and a chocolatey topping blended with Dairy Queen's signature soft serve. 
You can find these Dairy Queens at Palisades, De Mayo, Newcastle, Westmount, Y Gardens, and Baseline Road. All right. Let's get into this. I don't even know where this conversation is going to go. We're just going to pick up where we left off yesterday with Dr. Ubaka Ogbogu. I know that Albertans en masse are questioning the wisdom of the province essentially moving on from COVID-19. No longer will masks be required on public transit, in rides for hire. There will be no more contact tracing. There's not going to be any more testing. And if you actually have COVID-19, if you're positive for COVID-19, you are no longer required to isolate. Yeah, you heard me right. Dr. Shazma Mathani is an ER doctor at the Stollery Children's Hospital, as well as the Royal Alexandra. She's a professor at the University of Alberta's Department of Emergency Medicine, and she is just off night shift. We are thrilled she's agreed to join us. Dr. Darren Markland is a critical care physician and a nephrologist at the Royal Alexandra Hospital. He's in the ICU in Alberta's capital city. We're thrilled to have you both back here. Thanks for making time for us. I, I want to just essentially hand over the floor, encourage you to interact with one another. And of course, as you have in past to speak freely, uh, Dr. Markland, why don't we begin with you? Your response to the announcement from Dr. Dina Hinshaw, the health minister and Premier Jason Kenney the other day. Where's Lenora Saxinger when we need her the most? Yeah. Because <laughs> she's, she's the moderator. Uh, look, I can only echo what the world is saying right now, and that's what the hell. Um, this is uh, unprecedented, and we use that word a lot, but we're talking about getting rid of basic, fundamental infectious disease precautions in the time when things are about to get haywire. This is kind of like saying, okay, I've given you some seat belts. Maybe you have some brakes, let a rip tater chip. There's the hill. Um, we really don't like the idea of flying blind at the best of times. Anyone who's ever, you know, driven through fog knows that. Uh, but during the time when we suspect, uh, just by preliminary numbers and what's going on in other parts of the world, quote unquote, Florida, um, why the hell are we doing this now? Other than to cover up some really bad choices that have happened from the beginning of this pandemic. How do you think it's a cover-up? I mean, how do you think that would possibly work as a cover-up? Well, obviously, the stampede was a political decision that everybody disagreed with, other than people who were politically charged to get some funding. Uh, that's the seed of the next wave. And so the only way that you can you know, hide the crime is to cover up the bodies. That's what we're doing here. Now, there will be some arguments that, yes, respiratory viruses are coming out, will overwhelm the system, none of which I buy because we were able to amplify the system. And the reason why these respiratory viruses are coming out is because we've got rid of mask law, mask, sorry, mask mandates, which prevented them in the first place. Uh, look, we have time to get this right. I think the biggest issue is we have a bunch of kids out there who aren't vaccinated who, uh, if you look at the Florida population, are getting sick, uh, some are dying, some are leaving, having permanent brain injury as a result of it. And we have trials right now, which are coming out in fall, which will likely be positive and say we can get our kids vaccinated. But, you know, if we choose to fly blind, when these kids get sick, uh, there's nothing to stop them going to school and spreading it. And there's no way to get them tested, but to get them to go to the emergency department where other people are sick for other reasons. This is a plan that makes no sense on any level other than to hide and obfuscate. 
Uh, Dr. Mathani, you're a doctor at the Stollery Children's Hospital. So let me ask you about what Dr. Markland has, has just talked about, because there's I don't know if you guys know this, but there's actually a bunch of people on Twitter that are actually medical experts because they've read some things on Facebook. And so they know all about it because they've watched some YouTube videos. And they were all letting me know yesterday that we don't have to worry about kids because kids are resilient and the transmission rates are really low and barely any kids are dying, whatever. And, and, and Jesperson, maybe you should just quit hyperventilating. So we thought, well, maybe it might be good to get a doc from the Stollery. So here you are. Here I am. Uh, I 100% agree with everything that Darren just said there. I mean, listen, sure, kids kids are at lower risk, fine. But if we let COVID-19 spread rampantly throughout the unvaccinated, which the large majority of is children under 12, we will see complications for them from, from that. It's simple math, right? If you have hundreds of thousands of cases, thousands of cases, some kids will get sick from this. A lot of kids will get sick from this. They'll be coming into hospital. Some kids will probably die. Like this is this is completely reckless. Um, I don't understand why this is happening so quickly. Uh, in fact, the Canadian Pediatric Society even put out a statement. Like the 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 body that um, that all pediatricians that that belong to in this country put out a statement yesterday, specifically about uh, Alberta's choice to to rush ahead with this. Um, this thoughtless strategy, if I'm being completely honest, it just doesn't make sense. I don't know why we can't just wait a few months longer until our children are vaccinated uh, so that they can uh, go back to school safely so that we can reopen in a safe and graduated fashion. It's just, it's really mind boggling. It's confusing. I don't understand why this is happening. And, and, and yet yesterday, the premier's executive director for issues management on cue, as I predicted boldly that he would say almost literally verbatim word for word suggested that some people just don't want this pandemic to end. That's what that's all about. Per Matt Wolf, the premier's chief attack dog. Uh, Darren, what would you say back to him? God, I really want this pandemic to end so I can actually look after people the way that I used to, that I can provide some quality care. And um, I think all of us do. Um, it's, it's funny, right? I got into this conversation about, you know, HIV and AIDS when it first came out. I mean, HIV started as a epidemic and then a pandemic in 1982. We didn't figure it out until 1984. And then it wasn't until 1997 that we had an effective therapy that made it a chronic disease. That was 17 freaking years to get a global pandemic under control. And of course, there are places in the world that it isn't that can't afford these medications. Uh, we have, in the, in the course of literally uh, 16 months, figured out the disease, have a cure for it, and are able to implement it in a way that is um, so privileged. And yet we're saying that we're delaying things when all we want is you know, I'm not saying that we go back to where we were. Let's just put on a mask and give our chance, our kids a chance to actually make it through because you fry a kid's brain and that's a problem for life. Anyone who deals with a child who's got learning issues knows that there are other outcomes other than death and loss of limbs that are important in life. My wife is a developmental pediatrician. She deals with kids who have learning problems. They're smart. They're lovely. They're great kids, but they have a primary problem that needs to be fixed and COVID can cause that. Why do we want to bring on more trouble when we're having actually less social support because of the same government policies, which basically says mental health and addictions are your problem and uh, we moralize them. I just want to touch on that privilege piece that Darren just mentioned there. Sorry, Ryan. Like um, one of the things that has really stuck out to me through this entire pandemic is the amount of privilege that, uh, 
is intertwined in the decisions that are being made here, right? So like this, this pandemic has completely amplified the discrepancies in our society. It is completely uh, left behind the marginalized even further. And this decision again, uh, two days ago was doing that um, even more. I mean, when we talk about things like, oh, well, parents have, have the ability to protect, have always had the ability to protect their children, always had the ability to mitigate risks through decisions. Well, sure, some parents, like maybe Darren and I, you, Ryan, like we might have the ability to do that. We might have the ability to stay home if our kids are sick, um, not send them to school, not get everybody else sick. But I mean, what about the the marginalized families who are working multiple jobs, who don't have the ability to do that, who then are getting sick because of this? I mean, it just is, um, it, these decisions are, are all based on, on what the small minority can handle, the small privileged minority can handle. And it really doesn't take into account what the everyday family is having to face during this pandemic. I uh, participate in this group chat and, and I'm, and I'm sort of like walking the line of what's appropriate here because it's a private conversation and I, I don't want to make it public, but there was just a, there was a debate or a discussion yesterday about what was going on here. And, and I won't use names, but one of the people in our chat was talking about Dr. Dina Hinshop, uh, Dr. Ubaka Ogbogu had some pretty strong words for her yesterday on the show, and a whole bunch of people have, have checked out that interview. One of one of our correspondents, let's call them, wondered, why is she lighting her career on fire like this? Like, I'm seriously asking, what is the end game here? And another individual who's a pretty smart fella. As a matter of fact, he's a really smart guy. And I didn't respond to this because I wanted to just put his comments in front of you two and have you respond. He said, well, I don't know. Maybe she actually assessed the alternatives and made a call. Like, what's the alternative? One way or another, we're getting to herd immunity. And for that, it's either vaccines or getting COVID-19. So it seems like we're pretty much at the peak of vaccines. So what's the alternative? Dick around with restrictions and let COVID slowly work its way through everybody else. And then person number one says, but what's the rush? Why can't we take a more phased approach? We're so close to this being over-ish. Person number two says, why? So we can slowly get to herd immunity? Like, are less people going to get it? Doesn't seem like it. The people that are getting it have chosen to not get vaccinated. We can't possibly stop it from spreading. So they're going to get it eventually better sooner than later. Who wants to go first? Me. <laughs> Uh, well, sure, adults that are unvaccinated have chosen not to do this, but the large majority of people who are unvaccinated right now are kids under 12. And there is an end in sight. The alternative is why don't we wait until those studies get done and wait a couple months to get our kids vaccinated? I mean, I agree with, with friend number, I can't remember the numbers, but friend number one who said, like, what's the rush? Why, why are we rushing through this? That we know that the studies are being done to get our kids vaccinated, right? Those are weeks maybe a couple of months away let's just take things slowly we've always you know dr marklin and i have always said that my colleagues and i have always said this every single time something like this has happened where a rush decision has happened why are we rushing this we have information we have data we have vaccines coming for our kids let's just wait let's keep them safe and let's do this in a graduated and logical fashion dr marklin uh, I agree with Shazba, uh, 100%. Um, the, the reason for doing this has nothing to do with medicine or science. Um, 
In fact, it's really important to be irrational about this so that you can generate enough discord that you can destroy the public system. And really, I think that's probably one of the bigger underlying motives here is once this government is gone, I mean, these people are not in it for the people. This is truly, uh, this is truly some, some group that has gone in to destroy what has been set up by other people for the people uh, to come in and profit take and install um, private uh, profit sharing ways of taking healthcare dollars because they know that oil is no longer the pipeline of funds that it's going to be. Um, that is horrific. Um, and so these, uh, these irrational decisions, when you look at under a bigger picture, uh, are irrational on purpose. And so people are looking for rational choices. Uh, but, you know, as long as you follow a doctrine of shock and awe and nobody can actually figure out what's going on. Listen to the people who keep saying the same things. Look for progressive improvement. And when we say that, wear a mask, get your kids vaccinated, because these are habits that are going to be important in the future as well, because this will not be the first virus that is going to cause a pandemic. We need to train ourselves for the future. Do you really think that? I mean, I've I've seen people suggest that they think that this is part of Jason Kenney's bigger plan to to collapse or overwhelm the public health care system and and pave the way or open the door for justifying more private health delivery. And you know exactly what premier would say when asked he would roll his eyes and he'd scoff and he'd smirk and he would call you conspiracy theorists for suggesting this and he'd make some comment about tinfoil hats i mean do you really believe that that might be part of his mandate jasmine um i should have worn my tinfoil hat i guess today then uh yeah i do to be totally honest um we know that this government is ideology driven we we know uh you know, even just with with the bills that they've sneakily put through, like Bill 30, it, it sets everything up for privatization. And they're already starting to make moves in that direction now. I mean, uh, dismantle the public system, say it doesn't work, and then have private come in and save the day. We're, we're already seeing situations where funding could be funneled to places that it needs to be funneled. So, I mean, the, the Stollery announcement yesterday is a perfect example of that. I work there, right? I work at the Stollery. They just built, like, the university is one of the newest hospitals. The University of the Stollery are, are one of the newest hospitals in the city. Um, AHS had a report several years ago um, with, with the NDP during the NDP government time that said that the two hospitals that needed the most resources and, and really new hospitals were the Misericordia and the Royal Alex. Where's, where's the money and the funding there? Um, all of this is, is uh, kind of shuttling money and putting money in places where it doesn't make sense, where you get to have a nice photo op, where you get to, you know, again, conspiracy theory here, but maybe make some of your friends and donors happy um, without actually putting the resources where Albertans need, need the money to go. Why not build more supervised consumption sites? We know that that's needed. Instead, there's $2 million being put to explore having a separate hospital when when it within the healthcare system right now, there are things that could use that $2 million much, much more effectively and, and are in much more dire need of. Hmm. Darren? I concur. Look, the Alec is the biggest trauma center in in Alberta. We have a catchment in the northern region. However, we have a reputation of being that hospital where the homeless people go. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's not what we are. We are champions of people who... Uh, are experiencing homelessness. We are champions of people who have addictions. I mean, we've set up programs which are world renowned. Our ARCH program is trying to get to the, the causes by building relationships, but that doesn't tie into the base of people who fund 
this profit-based stripped down version of removing all social supports. Uh, it's not palatable. It doesn't look well in photographs. And, you know, nobody wants to shake the people's hands that we look after, but we're happy to, you know, we love our patient population. We cherish them. Uh, and I wish people could see the things through our lenses. Both of you uh, have, have been, um, I don't want to say outspoken, but you've been very candid and I've really appreciated it on social media. I wanted to read a couple of your tweets uh, to our audience just in in case they didn't see them. Uh, Doctor, just yesterday you tweeted, uh, Dr. Matheny, waking up to multiple media requests after a long shift, almost happy I was sleeping. I couldn't respond because I really just don't know what to say anymore. You're right. It's clear that this government has decided they just don't care about any of us. They don't care that our kids will get sick. They don't care that they're gambling with the lives and livelihoods of Albertans. All they're focused on is the economy. Well, there is no economy without people who are functional and alive. There's no future without our kids. They don't care that healthcare workers haven't recovered after over a year of hell, that patients just keep coming. Resources keep shrinking. That's without more COVID cases. What will we even do if those start rising again? We are dispensable to them. All of us. You say, I'm just going to come out and say it. They don't give a shit about us. All they care about is keeping their voter base and their donors happy. All they care about is getting reelected at any cost. Please don't forget this. Don't forget how little they care about you. Dr. Markland, you tweeted in its desperate attempt to return Alberta to its pre-pandemic state. The UCP has spread so much disinformation and splintered otherwise thoughtful people's trust in government to the point that it has effectively done the opposite. This will scar our province for years. What does it take for respected physicians, prominent physicians like yourselves to get to the point? Let me ask you, Shazma, first, when you tweet publicly that this government just doesn't give a shit about us, that's not something I would imagine that you just type up and tweet on a whim. Some thought goes into that. I mean, what has pushed you to this point? Give me an example of where they have given a shit about us, honestly. I mean... This last year and a half has been, it's been terrible decision after terrible decision. They are dismantling our social systems. You know, they're defunding H, they're changing our curriculum to make it more racist and and less, less progressive in the direction that it needs to go for our children. They have let COVID run, run rampant and killed people, right? Because, because they did not want to make the right decisions for Albertans quickly enough that they focus too much on the economy, the quote unquote economy with, without focusing on lives and what needed to be done in that moment. And then, you know, just when I, when I naively think that maybe, maybe something's different, I'm proven wrong again, that, that another stupid decision is made that puts Albertans at risk, that puts our kids at risk. Like give me an example, Ryan, of where they haven't, or where, where they have given a shit about anybody but themselves. Like, honestly, it's just, it's it's just one thing after the other with, with these guys. And, and it's, it's really frustrating to be here in a province that I love, that I grew up in, uh, to see it being completely dismantled in front of our eyes, which no matter how much Darren or myself or all of our other colleagues just cry foul and tweet and get out there uh, to try to educate our community it, it just really feels like it doesn't matter that 
everything we do, it, it just is not going to make a difference. And I really, really hope that in two years, that, that's what that last little bit was about on that tweet, right? Like that in two years, people don't forget everything that they have done to, to ruin our province. Yeah, I, I, I saw somebody tweet yesterday at the premier, uh, premier Kenny, who is your favorite Albertan and why is it a pickup truck? Um, Darren, you tweeted yesterday that you think that this is going to scar our province for years. What's, what's your fear there? I mean, how do you see that playing out? If you look into your crystal ball, what do the next few years look like? It's going to be distrust with the political system. Um, you know, we've become so polarized on purpose. Uh, I don't ever remember it being like this. I mean, if you sit in a, if anyone who does committee work or does any low level politics knows that, yeah, they sit around and build consensus. They're not about firing grenades into a room and waiting for people to crawl out with the smoke. You have to generate goodwill and trust. Uh, that's how people come together. That's how communities form. You know, I believe in that. Hell, I even have a little coffee cart that I run out every Friday and try to build it on a personal level. When you purposely generate uh, distrust in the system, you destroy it. Uh, and that takes years. It's so easy to tear apart the foundations of things that people have spent years and years building. Uh, and that's what's happening right now. This is truly an attack on our political system uh, to destroy and profit take from the capital and equity that people have put into healthcare and education. And it's absolutely horrific that people can get away with this just by smiling, um, saying the right things, making bad promises and driving around in a blue truck. I want to ask you too about uh, Dr. Dina Hinshop in particular, uh, it's it's been really interesting. Yesterday I said, hey, listen, I mean, the health minister, whether he's throwing her under the bus or not, uh, said that this was her idea, said that the government's operating uh, on her advice with, with regards to all the cancellations and, you know, I mean, sort of, you know, basically moving on <laughs> in layperson's terms. Health minister says, hey, it was Dr. Hinshaw's idea. And I said yesterday, if that's not true, she should resign on principle, right? I wouldn't be thrown under the bus like that. And if it is true, she should resign. And some people pushed back, you know, the people that have like, you know, white sunglasses on in their profile photos and, and you know, they, they, they read certain right wing publications and all these people all of a sudden are being fans of science. They're all of a sudden huge fans of Dr. Dina Hinshaw all of a sudden. And yesterday they were coming at me saying, oh, whatever happened to listening to the experts? Huh? Whatever happened, whatever happened to taking the advice of the experts? And I, and I want to ask the two of you. A very pointed question. Do you have confidence, Dr. Markland, in Alberta's chief medical officer of health? Uh, I have confidence in the person, but not the position. The position has been undermined from the very start. Um, she's scripted. Uh, she says whatever they want to say. But how but then you but then you don't have confidence in the person. Okay, so yeah, let's not mince words. No, I don't. I, I don't think anybody really does. Uh, the people who are saying they do are trying to mitigate damage. Dr. Mathani? Uh, no, uh, unfortunately, my answer is no. I, as much as I want to say yes, and, and I, and I hate that I have to say that I don't have confidence in, in a doctor colleague of mine. Um, the, you know, before, before two days ago, I, I could chalk it up to, well, she was trying, um, 
She's trying to push for, for the right decisions to be made uh, with the waves and with the restrictions. Um, but I have changed my mind since then. The U.S. Uh, Center for Disease Control has called the Delta variant the new war. Um, we had Dr. Ogbogu on yesterday who described Alberta as cooking a new variant. Um, now, I'll acknowledge that you're not epidemiologists, but you're obviously respected and educated physicians. Um, as far as you're comfortable, uh, to the extent that you're comfortable, do you, do you believe that that could be accurate medically, like scientifically? Could that be accurate? Jasmine? Uh, I'll let you go first, Jen. <laughs> if you want uh, to defer, that's, that's fine. I hear, I hear Sarah laughing in the background. Yeah, she, yeah both of them are, yeah. <laughs> scientifically, it is possible. You let a virus... Um, you let a virus grow uh, unmitigated, and yes, you will get variants. That's just the nature of the beast. Do I think we're going to get something that uh, has escaped potential? I don't. I actually believe that you know the technology and bioscience behind these vaccines has been so good that uh, we're not going to get something that that escapes vaccines. Every every vaccine and every variant has been susceptible to this technology. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. While you let these things grow, you may have you may have different variants which may be a little more infectious. Uh, but you're certainly taking out uh, people in the process, and um, these are all preventable. Like I just can't get over the idea that you know we're so uh, anti polio and anti smallpox, you know, and that the idea of letting a child die from a preventable disease, which is vaccine preventable. Uh, was forbidden before, but now seems to be acceptable. Uh, that, for me, is cognitive dissonance, and I can't get over it. Chasma, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I mean, just I, I agree with everything uh, that was said there. Um, the thing that really, again, just sticks out to me, yeah, like, yes, vaccines are effective, and I agree that, that, that um, it's, it's unlikely that that we are going to get these, you know, super virulent strains that are escaping vaccines, but we still are left with a population that is unvaccinated, not by choice, right? Our kids. And every time somebody gets infected, it puts, it puts them at risk for having a severe outcome. And I think that that's really what we need to focus on here, that um, our kids are vulnerable and, and the decision that was made a couple of days ago is allowing them to continue to be vulnerable instead of just waiting, waiting for them to be able to have, um, the like access to this medical miracle of, of vaccination. You know, and the other interesting thing too is part of the reason we have to wait for this is because uh, there's so much different disinformation and vaccine hesitancy now uh, that we have to be super careful. Like I think 99.5% of, uh, of infectious disease docs probably think that this vaccine is safe for kids. Uh, but nobody's willing to take the shot because if we do have adverse outcomes, um, it's 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 going to be bad. And, you know, those adverse outcomes will be far less than the prob the, pro the complications from the disease. But still, that's the rigor that science has to maintain. If we could can, if we could maintain that type of rigor in political discussion, we wouldn't even be here. We would be in utopia. Hmm. Dr. Metheny, what, what would we be talking about? Or both you can chime in on this, I'm sure, but go to the Stollery doc first. When it comes to some of the potential negative outcomes from vaccinating kids ahead of the point where, you know, like you said, 95% or even, you know, 99% of, of physicians or pediatricians would say, yeah, it's safe. What, would, what risks would we run right now putting the needles in the arms of six year olds using the vaccines that we currently have them in their current form? 
pretty little. Um, I mean, we, mm. we know that the negative effects of um, what COVID can have on kids, like sure, it, the mortality, the death rate is low from COVID, but there are, there's so much data coming up from all over the world um, uh, with long COVID in kids, right? Like that this becomes a, a chronic debilitating condition where, where kids have disability from this for weeks and months after getting a few sniffles. So again, like, just like we see in adults, their initial infection might not be that bad. And in fact, in my experience at the Stollery and seeing kids, uh, most of the people that I saw in the second and third wave that were kids that had COVID, they had pretty mild symptoms, but it's the, it's the long-term consequences after that, that, that should be a concern for people. And I think, I think that it is, I think that this decision has awoken parents, right? You never, you don't mess with people's kids without expecting all the parents to come um, uh, running after you and uh, rightfully so uh, being upset. And so um, everything in medicine is about risk benefit. And, and we know that um, COVID has very negative consequences. Um, and my, my feeling is that the, the risk of the vaccine would be very low compared to any sort of effects of getting COVID. I'm uh, grateful that the two of you have agreed to join us. I know that uh, our audience would want me to just reiterate how thankful we are, not just for your availability and your candor in interviews like these, but also for your public service over the past while. I wanted to close just by asking, I mean, Shazma, when you, you know, you wore your heart on your sleeve there a while back and you're talking to us about how you got to this point of tweeting what you did uh, the other day and, and people on our live chat are saying that, you know, their eyes are filled with tears. Some people are saying that they're having a moment where they're, they're shedding some tears here. People are emotional about this. And we've heard a lot about how uh, health workers, healthcare workers from, from, from the physicians uh, to, to the lab researchers, to the respiratory techs, to the paramedics, to the triage nurses, to the people that are cleaning the rooms, the people that are cooking for that, like everybody. I, I, I oftentimes will go on at length because I want to recognize absolutely everybody that deserves that. So the security guards, the people that are continuing to show up. And we've heard how, despite the fact that morale can be low in some circumstances that people are exhausted that in many cases people are furious that they still continue to show up that they're still pulling these long shifts that they're still working more than they're obligated to by the terms of their contracts how, how would you characterize what you're seeing around you at work from your colleagues from, from i mean how would you characterize right now the environment inside the hospitals um we're we're tired uh, it's um, bandwidths are low, right? We're all tired. It's been a really long year and a half and, and it's just getting busier. Um, but that being said, uh, we are, we are, we're a team, we're a family and, and we will always band together to do the right thing for patients and for Albertans. And so what I actually want to focus on what you were saying, Ryan, with, uh, you know, people feeling emotional, um, uh, in, in the group chat there, like use that emotion, right? Like, don't like, I, I want you to feel that. I want you to feel uh, what I'm feeling in terms of what I'm seeing happen to my home in front of my eyes here, feel that and do something with it. Um, don't, don't let this continue to happen. Um, don't, don't let th this government continue to destroy our province, get up and do something. Um, so here I'm going to put in a plug for, for a peaceful protest that's happening at noon today on the ledge ground. So go, it's masked. Um, Dr. Joe Vipond is the one that tweeted about it. So if you want more information, there's one in Calgary, there's one in Edmonton. Uh, let's show our leaders here that enough is enough and, and that they can't just keep making these, these decisions that are not benefiting ourselves and our families um it's time to make some change here and and to 
to let the government know that that enough is enough and that um, that that things need to change. Dr. Markland, what do you see around you at the hospital? Hmm. I see people stuck in the present uh, because they no longer want to look forward uh, because they fear what's going to happen. They know where they came from, uh, but there certainly isn't a lot of light where they're heading right now. Uh, And uh, that happens when you have no moral leadership. Uh, our leadership has happened on a very local level. Our hospital has been fantastic. Uh, even AHS has been very good. Uh, our municipal leadership has been very strong, but we need bigger picture stuff here and we need it desperately. We don't have a lot of time. Uh, so uh, when they're coming after your kids, uh, we know that they're coming after your future and you got to deal with it. Uh, and so I'm not speaking lightly about this, I think, you know, think about how you vote, but also you got to make that fear and that turmoil palpable. And uh, I would agree that you need to show government that um, what they're doing right now is not right for the people. You know, one of, one of the things I worry about, and it's it's not at the top of my list, but it's one of the things I worry about is that Alberta's reputation ha- has taken so many hits over the past couple of years under this premier I mean, just he absolutely he continues to just embarrass this province on the national and international stage. His 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 lack of understanding or his willful ignorance around, for example, where certain industries are going or where certain trends are with regards to international investment, his his unwillingness or his inability to pivot when it comes to his position on priorities. I mean, there are so many examples and I could go on. I wouldn't force you two to sit here and, and, and listen to me go on and on and on. I mean, essentially, in a way, I do it every single day. But I even think right now, you know, we're getting letters from people. I'm going to read one of them coming up in trash talk. People that are like, I, I was getting set one. This letter you'll read, you'll hear, you know, I, I was getting set to move back to Alberta from Vancouver says, I'm not doing that right now. I might later, but I'm not doing it right now. I worry about people that are considering, you know, we have friends that work in tourism. Uh, We have partners on this show that work in tourism. I worry about people that were excited to welcome folks back into their restaurants or into their amusement parks or into their gardens or whatever. Uh, People are going to cancel those plans. People that are only even reading the headlines that are wondering what the hell is going on in Alberta right now. I mean, think of people that are flying across the country and traveling. I mean, if a flight, if you have a a chance, you're going to fly one airline that's a direct flight from Toronto to Vancouver, or you could save a hundred bucks by having a layover in Calgary, but you're not sure you can't say with confidence that there's not somebody that is legally boarding that flight while COVID positive. Let, let's just sit for a second and think about that. You could legally board an aircraft with COVID-19 right now, not wearing a mask, not that that would do, make any difference. Um, you think that people are going to, I mean, this should, be, this should be pissing off airports and airport authorities. Like you think, you know what I'm saying? Like when you actually take a look at how the rest of the country and even outside Canada, how people are viewing Alberta right now, there is nobody. I was thinking of doing a Twitter poll. Like what, do you, what would you say would be the most damaging to Alberta in the province's history. And off the top of my head, I thought maybe Pierre Elliott Trudeau's National Energy Program, BSE, and Jason Kenney. Those are the three that off the top of my head I thought would make for an interesting poll. And I suspect that we would have one overwhelming answer right now. And that really bugs me. 
because actually I love this place and I really don't love, I'm proud to be from here. I'm proud to be raising my family here. I don't love seeing us look like a bunch of backwards yokels uh, based on the actions of this government, but that's exactly what's happening. And, and quite frankly, it hurts. We'll leave it, it. it does. It's, it's heartbreaking, right? It's heartbreaking when you've been, you know, th- this is somewhere that we've called our home. Like I, I love Alberta. Um, it, it's an amazing province and it's really heartbreaking to see uh, all of that being destroyed before our eyes at, at, at multiple levels. Right. Um, uh, and, and yeah, right. I mean, like you said, like the, I, I have friends all across the province and every time one of these decisions is made again, I inevitably get a text message from my friends in Ontario. What, what Shaz, what the heck is going on over there in Alberta? Like we thought Ontario was bad, but what's going on over there? It's always every time because it makes national news Our our the ridiculous decisions that get made here always make national news. And unfortunately it's, um, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to sit and watch. It's hard to sit and watch a place that you love uh, just being slowly destroyed and dismantled. Yeah. Dr. Darren Markland is a critical care doc, nephrologist. He's in the ICU at the Royal Alexandra Hospital. Dr. Shazamathani, an ER doc at both the Stollery Children's Hospital and the Royal Alexandra, also a professor at the U of A's Department of Emergency Medicine. I want to thank both of you. I mean, Darren, I know you had an event this morning. You do that awesome coffee outside thing. And and, and Shazma, you're coming off night shift. And here you are uh, just willing to take our questions. And I know that this audience and my myself as well, we, we really appreciate it. I want to wish you both well. Good health. Renewed vigor. And thank you again sincerely from the bottom of our hearts. Thanks, Ryan. You can let us know what you think about this interview, what you've heard from those two doctors, the experts. Uh, pretty remarkable to hear both of them go on the record. They have lost faith in Alberta's chief medical officer of health. That is no small thing, as you saw from Dr. Marklin in particular, to go on the record and say that. Both of them lamented the fact that if they're going to be honest with us, if they're going to be honest, they had to say what they had to say. But that's a pretty significant moment right there live on Real Talk. When it comes to the political fallout of what's going on right now, I will note that fundraising is not everything, but it is something. And Dave Cornwaye, uh, who does a brilliant job at DaveBerta.ca, I encourage you to read that and subscribe to the Dave Berta podcast. Uh, yesterday, pushing some numbers out, the NDP clobbering the United Conservatives and fundraising again. Uh, former Premier Rachel Notley, the leader, of course, of Alberta's official opposition, raising twice as much cash as Premier Kenny's United Conservative Party in the second quarter of 2021. That's one point five million for the NDP, uh, just under seven hundred seventy thousand for the UCP. And, and then you got a few of the fledgling parties there. Alberta Party raising about thirty eight grand. The Wild Rose Party about twenty five grand. There's the Wild Rose Party again. Everyone's going the Wild Rose Party. What the? F- I thought the Conservatives were united. What the heck? Twenty five grand for the Wild Rose. That's the Wild Rose Independence Party, of course. This is the marriage of some other parties. Oh. And then the Liberal Party of Alberta raising twenty five grand. The Wild Rosers. That's got to piss them off that the Liberals in Alberta are raising as much as they are. <laughs> that's got to really piss them off. <laughs> You know what? There's going to be a Wild Rose Independence Party supporter uh, that'll be watching this that hears this, a valued member of our broad Big Ten audience, and they're going to come in and donate every single cent they can to give them that little, little bump boost, up. We yeah. can't be raised. The Alberta Liberals, who's even there? Who's even leading them right now? You could say the same thing about the Alberta Party. No disrespect intended to anybody's political affiliations, but let's be honest, this is a two-horse race. It's $1.5 million raised by the ND, 770000 raised by the UCP through the second quarter of 2021. 
We mentioned uh, the Edmonton Triathlon. Of course, you know that the World Triathlon Championship Finals are coming to Edmonton on August 20th. And I wanted to steer you to their website. They've got some really great information there on how you can get involved. And there's a link to explore Edmonton's site talking about this is Edmonton. Yeah, we camp with bison. We party under the Aurora. We surf on the prairies we've always done things a little differently and we welcome you to be part of it it's all part of the allure the magic the draw that drew the world triathlon championship finals to edmonton of course it goes august 20th to 22nd and there are amazing opportunities for you to get involved as a spectator as a volunteer they're so excited organizers are after a difficult 18 months to rally the community to showcase our due north spirit Canada has many of the top triathletes in the world, and you will see them along with many of the athletes that will have been competing in the Tokyo Olympic Games. So keep an eye out for for Tyler Mislachuk and Matt Sharp and Joanna Brown. These are some of Canada's favorites. These are some of those that could walk away with the win here on August 21st. That's race day. All of them will be here racing in Edmonton. You can check out edmonton.triathlon.org for more information. If you're thinking of reinventing your outdoor space, it is always a good time. I mean, whether it's in the middle of February with a foot and a half of snow on the ground or right now when it's beautiful outside, to visit landscapeedmonton.ca and get a sense of how Eden Landscaping has been bringing outdoor spaces to life. They're a custom landscape builder, and for more than 20 years, they've been earning that on-the-ground experience in Edmonton and surrounding communities. You don't have to hire a landscape landscape architect and then a general contractor and then people to provide the services it's a one-stop shop with eden landscaping from the first consultation where mike and his team will go through you maybe you have a pinterest board maybe you've been collecting photos ripping them out of magazines hey could we do something like this in my yard that's when the planning starts All of a sudden, next thing you know, they're breaking ground and you've got that outdoor oasis. You can find more online at landscapeedmonton.ca. And a big shout out to our good friends at Local Waste. You know, for more than a quarter century, they've been family owned and they've been going head to head against all those big multinational garbage companies. They pride themselves on integrity. And that means that they're not trying to score a great deal at your small business's expense. They're only going to sell you the service that you need. And as your business grows, they will grow the relationship with you. You can learn more about the services that they're providing in Alberta and Saskatchewan, as well as how they're looking to expand those entrepreneurs out there. Again, you'll find them online at localwaste.ca. Each and every Friday, right as we wrap up our broadcast week, our friends at Local Waste provide an opportunity for us to blow off a little steam. These are emails that we've received through the week to talk at RyanJesperson.com. It's a little tradition we call Trash Talk! All right, this is from Scott who wrote in to wonder, what the hell is so important on your cell phone that you need to be looking at it while crossing the street or worse, walking through the parking lot or the driving lane as you're headed to the store? Once you're in the store, you're still looking at your screen. You're walking into people. No clue where you're going. Scott pleads with us, put your phones away. Nothing is so important. It can't wait. Or even stop walking, move to the side and check your mentions. He wraps up 
That is all. All right, Scotty, thank you. This one from Louisa, who says, A week ago, with great anticipation, I sat down to binge-watch season two of Ted Lasso, only to find out that they're only releasing one episode per week. Unacceptable, says Louisa. What is this, the 1990s? I want to be able to binge my beloveds. Did the producers forget that we're still in a pandemic, that I could use a big dose of optimism and humor? I got to wait a week to find out why Jamie Tart is on a salacious reality show? Oh, should I have spoiler alerts here? We have to wait a month to find out if Roy Kent's yoga mom group will figure out who he is, and I gotta wait months to find out if our fierce, fabulous Rebecca will find love again? Louisa says, I demand that the streaming TV gods release all episodes of Ted Lasso Season 2 today, so we can binge it over and over and thus restore a little joy and optimism in a world gone sad and mad. Bingefully yours, Louisa! How about this from Deanne? who says premier how can we believe that you care about alberta and its citizens when you continually adopt reckless and irresponsible slacking of healthcare rules pandemic over lie no isolation when testing positive dangerous stupid frightening eliminating testing by the end of august fudging the numbers with deadly consequences you cut our heroic nurses wages while you waste billions of taxpayer dollars on pipelines disgusting you only care about your base you only care about re-election you only care about preserving your jobs you don't give a damn about people that didn't vote for your party period and dr hinshaw i've lost confidence in your role as an object non-partisan chief medical officer of the province you've disappointed me beyond words you had ample opportunity to stand up for albertans and you failed us miserably. You compared COVID-19 with the common cold yesterday, singing directly from the UCP song sheet. Premier, your actions have pitted Albertan against Albertan, dividing us, your classic tactic. You should be uniting us, not creating fear and mistrust. This is a new low, Jason, a new all-time low, even for you. Albertans need to be vaccinated against the UCP, says Deanna. I am sick to death of your crap. How about this one from Tim, who says, Happy Friday. I was excited to move back to Edmonton. I was excited to see my friends and loved ones. A triumphant return home for a week after moving to BC for a new job. Even though I'm fully vaccinated, Alberta lifting COVID restrictions the way they are, restricting testing, taking, quite frankly, a stupid approach to opening things up, along with rising cases, I'm rethinking my plans. I haven't seen my family in a year. I've been doing my part following the rules, but because of a government more focused on the rich than people who actually make the province function. Things keep getting worse and I hate it. Says, I'm changing travel plans. I'm going to Vancouver to try for the holidays. He says, by the way, moving to uh, BC from Alberta was not as much of a shock financially as they thought it would be. Now, I'm not on the coast, but everyday expenses and bills pretty much what they were when I was in Alberta. The PST, the extra taxes, a small price to pay to not live in a place led by Jason Kenney, worth every single cent, says Tim. I rant because I care. And this one comes with a very special earmuffs warning from Tanya. Her subject line, how many times can I get Ryan to say fuck on a Friday? Tanya says, as your local UCP candidate, she's running for office, but not really. Can you believe I literally just dropped the email and I can't find it? Oh no, here it is! Did you get it? Did you have it? I got it, I got it. She's kidding here, by the way. She's not seeking office. As your local UCP candidate, I wanted to provide some specific greetings to all of our constituents. We've been hard at work to ensure Alberta's strong and free and that our economy, capital T, trumps all. First, to our children, our future, 
Fuck you! We've provided a backwards and regressive curriculum to ensure you're behind your international peers for generations to come with no understanding of racism or social development. And because we value you so much, a double fuck you! As we sacrifice your young bodies to our economy, the damn lefties won't let us put you in coal mines anymore, but we found a different way for your young lives to serve our corporate masters. Oh, to our women! Fuck you! Childcare will continue to solely be your responsibility and will continue to hinder your participation in the economy because we all know you really belong at home in the kitchen anyway. To our rural communities, a hearty fuck you! We will no longer require our beloved oil and gas industry to pay their fair share as a party that prides itself on self-reliance. We know your communities share that sentiment and no longer need such opulent subsidization to live within your means. To our beautiful eastern slopes, guess what? Fuck you! We can buy water in bottles and maybe a few hundred bucks in royalties and a handful of jobs easily worth the sacrifice of a couple of mountains that nobody important on our donor list visits anyway. And next, to those of you that want to make COVID last forever, fuck you! We're going to stop counting cases and then you can just relax and make Alberta great again. But still get vaccinated even though we told you for the past year that you're not vulnerable. Just make your own choices. Be safe with an absence of data. We'll now provide you information so confusing. Just trust the mats. Twitter account. Hijabi women, fuck you. Here's some pepper spray. Indigenous communities, unless you want a pipeline through your living room, fuck you too. To the constituents of Lesser Slave Lake, fuck you. Pat Rain's a great guy. People experiencing homelessness, poverty, addiction, guess what? Fuck you. And we're going to make you pull yourselves up by your bootstraps, but bootstraps not included. And finally, to our public servants, our nurses, teachers, doctors, post-secondary, AHS employees, and other government workers who've kept the lights on for the past nine months, a super fuck you too. We all know we owe you the private sector, and it's high time you carry the burden of our poor choices. Schools have robust safety plans. We just tore up and flushed with those COVID restrictions. We know you're not leaving Alberta because we have low taxes today. Offer only valid at time of UCP purchase. So on behalf of the UCP government, we send you these greetings. We'll say again, we're proud of our accomplishments. Standing up to Ottawa and the radical left and Justin Trudeau's harmful agenda. We'll continue to ensure that all pickup truck stampede oil-loving Albertans are protected against the evildoers and we'll fuck him over again and again and again until there are no more fucks to give. Have the best summer, everybody. The best summer ever. Sincerely, your local UCP, UCP candidate, Tanya. That's it for another edition of Trash Talk. Sorry, kids, for all the swearing, but sometimes you just got to let it out. We're taking Monday off. We'll see you Tuesday from all of us here at Real Talk. Thanks for watching.